Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade. Uh, so our normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, our guest for the evening, we had a slight scheduling uh, mishap, but nothing too tremendous. Uh, we were going to do eight by normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, but he, had, he basically got double booked, uh, and so he will be joining us at 9. So a little less than 60 minutes from now, he'll be hanging out. We will discuss his book, Know Your Price, uh, with one of my favorite quotes. It's actually in the book, which is great, because he did an interview on St. Louis Public Radio maybe a month back, and he used the quote uh, in the text, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve, and it's in the book several times. That's like his refrain uh, for the book. So we'll be able to get that in, and folks can get their questions in, all that jazz. Uh, but he'll be here uh, at 9. So I'm left with a slight, slight conundrum, because I was all here and ready to roll, uh, to talk about the book Know Your Price and all of that. Uh, but now we have 60 minutes, so... We could hang out for an hour and figure it all out, chat it up if folks have any other things that they would like to discuss. Uh, trying to even think because I was not prepared to hang out and just chat about uh, any old thing. Uh, we will be here on Thursday for the book club, uh, Dr. Layla Africa. Woo! Man, oh man, if we got five minutes to kill, I could easily eat up five minutes telling you about why that is one of the lamest books in the history of the known universe. Um, wow. In so many ways. Uh, we, we're, thankfully, we're almost done uh, with the text. Uh, thank goodness. But man, oh man, uh, not enjoyable at all in any way, shape, form. Uh, lots of errors, typos, um, poorly edited. I've said that from the very beginning of the book. Uh, poorly edited to the point that it uh, interferes with your ability to accurately comprehend the text, which is uh, kind of unheard of. Uh, it's, I mean, I would have a challenging time even thinking of books that I've read. I mean, I've read a book where a word was misspelled here or there, like a slight typo, but I mean so many errors in the book that it makes it challenging for you to accurately read and understand what is written. Wow, that is like a whole new low. In addition to the lack of uh, detail, the lack of focus, the lack of specifics with regards to meals and how we could change our diet for the better, uh, the name calling of black people, I could go on for a long amount of time on the uh, non-constructive nature of uh, 
the nutritional destruction of black people. But we're almost done, thank goodness, and we can get on to something else. Reading is more important than watching television. That does not mean that you will love every single book that you read. That is not the case at all. Some books are better than others. The same way with television. Not everything is going to be Marvel's Black Panther. So if we will pick better next time around, man, not quality reading. We should be here on Friday as well, neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, Gus T. might actually even be doing a broadcast tomorrow, revisiting the mail situation, uh, my personal mail situation, and then the 11-year-old black female uh, who attempted to check, her, or to check the mail for her grandmother, and she ended up being terrorized and assaulted. Um, I've said consistently, I think, for the past few weeks with this whole uh, COVID-19 crisis globally, at least in the United States, what seems to be happening is white people are feeling motivated with their so-called stress or anxiety around the virus that they can just be more flagrant and violent in practicing racism against black people. Uh, told you about the incident uh, where I just want to check my mail and this white man uh, rides up on me in an SUV and, you know, what are you doing, accusing me of looting mailboxes, I guess. Uh, some identical uh, situation happened with this 11-year-old black girl uh, down in Georgia. This white woman violently assaulted her, which is what I felt like the white man was looking for uh, in my situation. He wanted some sort of confrontation. I thought he could have been armed. Uh, I just saw today before we went live on the program that in New York, uh, it was a black male. They were out at the park, and recently opened parks, I guess, and this white woman was walking her dog, and the black male asked if she could put her dog on a leash, and she called the police on him. Um, There's just tons of them. And they were talking about the situation in Minnesota where race soldiers killed a black male. It's just more and more. Like I think, in fact, NPR, I looked at uh, All Things Considered, which is their kind of popular midday news report that kind of gives an hour of basic news. And so they had, and I've done for years, I've said you can look at sequencing and how important sequencing is. So they had a news report on Ahmad Arbery in Georgia, black jogger uh, who was shot and killed, uh, suspected race soldiers, no badge. Uh, and so then they went to black male in New York, uh, white woman calls the police on him, uh, just because he asked her to put her dog on a leash. Incidentally, I've had that happen many times, not where the police were called on me, but uh, when I was out and about in a public space, uh, when I lived in California particularly because uh, I jogged at the time and I would frequently jog in parks uh, or in air, uh, neighborhoods where mostly white people lived. Uh, and so you'd have lots and lots of dog owners outside walking their dogs uh, in the lovely California sunshine. And they have leash laws, uh, at least in the areas where I lived in California. And generally, that's the case at most uh, public parks uh, where dogs are supposed, unless it's a dog park, I guess, uh, where the dogs are supposed to be on a leash. Uh, and repeatedly, I've been out where they do not observe uh, leash laws. They just do whatever they want to. Um, and if you say something, the same uh, defiance that has been on display throughout the so-called COVID-19 situation where, you know, put my daughter, you're not going to tell me and Fido, we got to wear a leash. You get out of here. We don't even allow coons in the park in the first. Like, that sort of attitude has been rife. Uh, I've had it happen repeatedly. I remember an incident where I was at the park in California with a white woman suspected racist, no less, 
we're out jogging, we or we're running opposite direction. There's another uh, white group, uh, multiple people. They have a dog, no leash. And the park that we're at, they specifically have a sign when you enter, all dogs on a leash. Tickets about that, supposed to be taken serious. So they're walking, we're running, and their dog, who's not like, you know, some little terrier, not like a little, you know, three-pound mutt or something, their dog, he runs over all aggressive, like, hey, get your dog, get your dog. Like, oh, call that out. He's lovely. Give him a kiss. Just give him a kiss. He loves you. Give him. Heck, what are you talking about, man? Get your dog. Like, I'm not trying to be friends. Like, grab him. And they, like, got upset with us for, like, not stopping the <laughs> Anyway, I have encountered that regularly, uh, white people and their dogs. Dr. Welsing talked about that uh, in the ISIS papers, Man's Best Friend. Um, easily could have been me. The situation happened today easily could have been a whole lot of black people because I think this is pretty common uh, in terms of folks getting molested, mauled. If anybody has seen uh, reading, more important than watching television, but the film uh, White Dog is one of my favorites all time. It's an older uh, film. It came out in the 80s. I guess we're mostly done with social distancing, right? People are out and about, I guess, for the most part, or more so than they were two months ago. But if you are still on lockdown uh, and have viewing time, White Dog, uh, it's one of the best films, I think, on racism, white supremacy that exists. Uh, it is exactly as the name implies. What does it mean to be white? White Dog, a dog that happens to be white, who despises and kills black people, owned by white people, of course. White women, no less, owned by white women. But that is not the point. But, yeah, it's one of the best films uh, that I've seen. It has uh, an extremely important dramatic scene that happens in a church, White Jesus. Uh, involves a, a black male uh, trying to reform, rehabilitate this racist dog. Uh, it's amazing. I would definitely encourage checking it out. But, yeah. I'm not, uh, if we have dog lovers and the listening audience, spectacular. I'm not a dog lover. They say COVID-19 uh, is uh, something you can transfer between animals. So, yeah, Fido might have to sit outside while all this is happening. But anyway, I can relate to the situation that happened to the jogger in the park today. I'm sure we'll talk about that later on uh, in the week. Um, I'm sure there will be some mention of the situation in Minnesota Although, uh, where the black male was killed in police custody, although I've said for years I do not follow those cases, I just try to get enough information so that I can competently speak to it if I'm asked about it uh, while hosting the program, that sort of thing. I you know, don't want to be totally ignorant uh, about what's happening, but I do not watch that footage. Uh, and particularly in this environment, uh, I just said what I you know, heard on NPR. It was Ahmed Arbery the Minnesota situation and the black male in New York. That'd be black misandry too, black privilege all over the U.S. Um, but to have all of that in the midst of COVID-19 and dying and death and sickness, uh, and, you know, black people are dying at disproportionate numbers all over the world. I mean, just black death, black death, black misery, black death, black death. Oh, and then police shot in the army. Oh, and then we got to go back to Breonna Taylor. I'm not saying that these things shouldn't be talked about, but I, wow. Um, they have the audacity to talk about individuals classified as white having their mental health and sanity disrupted while all of this is happening. 
being a victim of white supremacy where your economics may or may not have been disrupted. I know that's not the case for everybody, but for a lot of non-white people, that has been the case with your family, children, hoping everybody is healthy and all the rest of it, not able to go out. You got all the restrictions. Can you go out? Can you get this? Can you get that? All the stress within all of that. Then you got to see all these reports. Black people are dying from the virus. Black people are getting COVID-19. It's terrible in New Orleans. It's terrible in Michigan. It's terrible in New York City. It's terrible in New Jersey. It's terrible in Washington, D.C. You keep getting all these reports just bombarded. Uh And then in the middle of that, they got Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and now the situation in Minnesota. I would feel free to turn off the television. Like I said, get whatever information you need to make correct logical choices. But, man, protect your sanity as best you can. I would try to avoid watching uh, that content if that means no checking out the news after a certain hour when it's time for you to get, uh, go to bed. I would not check that material then uh, because I think this material does. Uh, have a hugely corrosive impact on how black people think and feel, uh, operate in the world. We'll talk about some of that with our guest when he joins us uh, at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific uh, on the fly adjustment. Um, Yeah, just all of that has a huge impact. We talked about some of that uh, back with uh, Ferguson because there were so many of those types of reports happening on a daily basis and just that deluge. It has an impact on our health. Uh, Some of this is why folks have said, hey, because of that, black people are more susceptible because of white supremacy racism and how it damages our health on a daily basis. Dr. Wells is saying we do not qualify for mental health, physical health, all the rest of it, uh, that this is why. He even talks in the book, I guess, for the program this evening, Dr. Perry, uh, he talks about the struggles that he and his uh, black wife had in having a biological child, and he talks about stress direct white supremacy racism probably being a part of that equation and why it was so difficult. Very widespread. But, yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, Again, my recommendation would just be do not uh, binge on this content. Get the information that you need so that you can make constructive uh, decisions. Be mindful of how it's impacting people. Uh, in your household, if they're feeling a little bit down, depressed, if they're seeming like they don't have the same energy, uh, vitality that they normally would, like the, all of this might be getting to them because that is very real. Uh, people being, you know, having PTSD, uh, just having anxiety about this, particularly if you know people or been uh, impacted by folks who've been sick around all this or have had their jobs disrupted uh, by all this, or their education, academic pursuits, other plans disrupted by all this, and then the stress on top of that, the white supremacy and seeing all these images of black people being accosted, black children being accosted, trying to check the mail, and black people dying and, you know, all the rest of it. Be mindful of that. Be mindful of our mental health uh, and try to do things even from this limited uh, capacity that are going to be restorative. Uh, really trying to be patient with other black people in this time, uh, just being mindful like, Wow extraordinarily difficult spring of 2020. Stay steadfast as we can to go about the business of replacing white supremacy with justice. Uh, For folks who just joined us, again, our guests, we're supposed to do our normal uh, broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We're all set for that. But we had a slight scheduling snafu. We had the so-called horror day with uh, Memorial Day uh, yesterday. 
even though it was kind of muted because of the health crisis, so-called. Um, but yeah, I guess we didn't. I normally confirm with our guests just to make sure nothing wacky happens, and kind of make sure everybody remembers, you know, date time, so we're all set. Uh, it looks like you know information wasn't conveyed, but we should be all set for nine. Uh, he had kind of double booked, so once he's all set with that appointment, we will get him on the line in about 40 minutes. We'll discuss the book, Know Your Price. Uh, Dr. Andre Perry, he is a fellow at the Brookings Institute, black male victim of white supremacy, uh, grew up in the Pennsylvania area. Uh, he talks in his book uh, about cities that have a lot of black people, sometimes a majority of black people, uh, cities Detroit, uh, Washington, D.C., Birmingham, Alabama, Atlanta, I think some of the areas that he that comes up in the book. Uh, no coincidence, some of these locations are also, I think all of the locations that I just mentioned, New Orleans is another one in the book, uh, the locations that he mentioned, I think all of them have been listed as so-called hotspots for the uh, COVID-19 situation. So he, Dr. Perry, he's been talking uh, about his book. His book was just published this month, uh, but he's been talking quite a bit about COVID-19 because his book deals with health on how deliberate acts of white supremacy disrupt our health. So uh, I'm very eager uh, to relate uh, what's happening right now with, like I said, pretty much every city that he talks about in his book uh, has, you know, for about the past month and a half been talking about black people struggling in these areas, people in general struggling in these areas, and black people being hit really hard uh, by COVID-19 and what to be done and structural racism and all of that. So we'll get into the details as well as the folks who say that some of these uh, statistics are false, uh, that racists have been deliberately deceptive uh, with some of the statistics uh, about uh, black maternal mortality rates, infant mortality rates, even the statistics around COVID-19. Uh, he has some of that material in his text, obviously not about COVID-19, but uh, the other stats he has in his text, so we'll discuss that as well. Uh, if folks have anything they want to make sure they share before we get to our guest, and we have about 40 minutes uh, hanging out, might do a sound clip to wait a little bit. Like I said, this is kind of an on-the-fly adjustment that we'll be waiting an hour. Uh, so if folks have anything that they want to make sure they bring up, discuss uh, while we wait our 40 minutes, uh, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. 605-313-5164. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Folks have anything before our guest gets here? If not, I'll uh, check out, see if we have any audio segments as well uh, to share. Uh, I will say in the meantime, with the whole so-called uh, Memorial Day, uh, they, I had said that they were shooting firecrackers. Uh, it's, this was not like a coordinated event. This sounded like someone who had them left over from New Year's or maybe last 4th of July or whatever it is. Uh, just came outside to let off a few rounds. That's what it sounded like to me. I didn't hear anything uh, more than that uh, over this past weekend or so. Uh, but I do generally, any time that they stop and do a lot of the uh, Pollyanna-ish behavior and 
whoopee for America and we're all in this together and fighting the war and all that nonsense. Like, wow, we have done a lot of programs about abuse uh, of black veterans. Uh, the Port Chicago mutiny, uh, really important. Uh, that was in California during World War II. Uh, they had black soldiers who were working in the Navy, no less, in very unsafe conditions. They were loading uh, explosives. Uh, on a ship and doing so in an unsafe manner. They had uh, white commanders who were challenging them to do things faster and, you know, make a race, you know, out of it to get this done. Uh, and sure, they ended up having an accident, huge explosion, killed hundreds of people, it destroyed lots of property and all of this, and ended up having black soldiers uh, who ended up protesting these unsafe conditions and ended up getting in trouble uh, in the Marines. You know, they got court martials and all of that, but we talked about that. That's in the archives, the Port Chicago You need to have a book by the same name uh, on the program. Uh, that's back in 2010. Uh, black Soldier Blues uh, is a documentary uh, also about World War II. Uh, black veterans where they were stationed in Australia. They're supposed to be uh, protecting uh, the Allied forces right there next to the, you know, slant eyes in Japan. Uh, we, the documentary features black males who were there, and they talk about uh, their racist officers who wouldn't even give them firearms. Like, they're literally out so-called on patrol and protecting, and they can see the enemy combatants and, you know, slant eyes. So, what are you doing? We can see you. What are you doing? And, you know, they got a stick. <laughs> like, I hope it doesn't get any worse. Got my branch here. We can throw twigs at them. Uh, and then they also, in the, I think this documentary is online, Black Soldier Blues. But they also had the segment where they talk about uh, they were not allowed off the ship at first. They got white supremacy globally. Uh, so they, at first they wouldn't allow them off the ship. The white people in the U.S., racists in the U.S., racists in Australia had to work out their policy about how the Negroes were going to be treated once they got to Australia. Uh, then they did allow some off, and they had a number of black people who ended up being lynched, accusations of raping a white woman, cowbell. Uh, features a number, uh, it's stunning, of letters that some of these victims of white supremacy wrote uh, the evening before they were scheduled to be hanged for these, you know, suspicious rapings, uh, and them writing letters back to their family. Uh, lots of, I mean, illustrations. I even have one. Some, a lot of this came to mind. Well, one, it came to mind because of the holiday event. Two, some of this is mentioned in the text uh, about Detroit specifically uh, in World War II and how the Great Migration, you got lots of black people from the South moving to areas like Michigan, Illinois, so on. And they get jobs uh, working for the car industry. We've got to support the war effort. And even then, it was not, you know, patriotism and defeating fascism, victory over Hitler, you know, he's a scout. And, 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 and hold up. War or no, we have got niggers here sweeping the floor, and that is not going to happen. Like uh, Charles Hyde, his book, uh, arsenal of Democracy. Uh, he was a guest on the program in 2014. It struck me just because I went back to get that information uh, to share with our guest, Dr. Perry, this evening. Uh, in that book, Arsenal of Democracy, we had Dr. Charles Hyde, he's a white man, wrote the book on the program in the summer of 2014. The time we had that broadcast was the very time that they were having all of the disruptions in St. Louis around the murder of Michael Brown, Jr., and I just remember it being like, wow, maybe we should not be doing this program, talking to this white man about racism during World War II in Michigan while they got all this happening in St. Louis. So we did that program, and then we talked about the riot, and you know, we did a lot of coverage of that too. But 
I'm so glad that we went ahead with that because I have referenced that so many times. Every time I see that image of Rosie the Riveter and people basically lying uh, about World War II and we all came together and worked together and prejudice had to be put to the side. That is a spectacular lie in that book. He, he has uh, so many striking examples in Michigan alone uh, where they hired uh, – it wasn't like they hired 600 black people. It would be like they hired like eight black females to clean the bathrooms at the plant. You know, something – meager. Like, you know, we're going to give them a piece of cornbread and 50 cents to come, you know, clean the bathroom, sweep the floor, just do the custodial work. And it's like I said, eight of them, you know, eight, six of them, a small number. And uh, these white women flipped out. They protested. I think he had one where they went on. It was like a thousand of them. It might have been thousands, plural, but at least a thousand of them went on strike because they hired like 10 black people in Michigan. No Rosie the Riveter. It is Rosie the Racist. We are not about patriotism. We are not about coming all together and fighting it in it. We are about practicing white supremacy racism. But that's in the archives. Uh, Dr. Charles Hyde, Arsenal of Democracy. I'm going to uh, probably just read a little snippet today just to ask our author. But, yeah, with all that nonsense, so-called Memorial Day, and, and they want to you know, act like they got some pride, what they call it, patriotism, and all that. I watched, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I read Know Your Price, preparation for the program side, read, take my little break, read, take a little break. I love Cuba Gooding Jr. films, Cowbell. Everybody loves Cuba, Cuba Gooding Jr. films. Jerry Maguire, doesn't everybody love that one, Cowbell? Uh, wait a minute. I don't think that's a Yeah, he has a black tick. Sorry, no cowbell there. Take that back. But everybody loves uh, Jerry Maguire. Got that one. Boys in the Hood. Doesn't everybody love that one? Knee along. Ice Cube. Men of Honor. I watch Men of Honor. They got Robert De Niro in that one. There's the cowbell. Accurately so. So I watched that one again. I've seen it before. There it is again. Patriotism. We're all in this together. No way, Cookie. We don't allow Negroes in the Navy. Get out of here, Cookie. Try and kill him. We don't allow Negroes around here. Get out of here, Cookie. That was the one that I watched. I don't know if they, if they have that in the regular rotation uh, for Memorial Day or any Veterans Day, any of these other holidays where they want to worship uh, trained white combat killers. I don't know if they include that one. Or Black Soldier Blues, as I said. That one is really good, too. Jackie Robinson, uh, World War II veteran. Mr. Fuller, Korean War veteran. I think he did two tours. Lots of... Uh, really well-known uh, black people who are veterans, did what they could. Harriet Tubman, veterans uh, who could be recognized. Geronimo Pratt, uh, Pratt, Black Panther Party, lots of black uh, victims of white supremacy who could be recognized for their you know, service uh, in the system of racism, white supremacy, their service uh, in the armed forces. But generally, they just got more white supremacy racism. Even Jim Brown, I forgot. Jim Brown's a legend, veteran, veteran. Uh, let's see. Uh, we have about 30 minutes before we get to our live guests. Any folks, comments that they want to get in if you went to a spiffy uh, Memorial Day celebration uh, and have a comment you'd like to share about that. They had great potato salad or anything else. Uh, let's see. Uh, retired firefighter, probably in New Jersey. Both of y'all should be with us. I don't know if y'all had things you wanted to share. If y'all were just itching for our guest, Dr. Perry, got about 30 minutes before he gets here. Greetings. Uh, yeah. Greetings, Gus. Okay. Greetings, everyone. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah I, I, was, I was just uh, 
wondering whether or not there was a program. I knew it was one before Thursday. I just did, I forgot what day and just got through doing the running outside. But uh, I see I haven't missed out on anything. And uh, you didn't have like a general question or anything, did you? No, sir. Our guest is going to be here in about 30 minutes. Uh, we were going to do the normal uh, time and procedure at 8 p.m., but uh, we had a scheduling uh, snafu, uh, so he'll be with us in 30 minutes. And so we'll be starting uh, at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. I uh, just told folks that I was not sure uh, whether to hang out or go sit around for an hour and, and prep, but folks that are dialed in, so figured we could hang out and wait until uh, Dr. Perry got here. Right on. The, the only other thing uh, uh, significant today is uh, Mr. Fuller's program was on a day, and he was, uh, uh, it was pretty constructive. He uh, spoke on, uh, uh, you know, many different subjects. Uh, one thing that was profound was on what he was talking about when he was talking about on the situation with the uh, with the non-white black male who was uh, uh, affixed to death uh, a couple of days ago. That's it. Thank you. Lots to focus on that. I think that's the situation in Minnesota. More of that. Just expect that to continue to happen. I know I've heard exactly. Uh, that's exactly what he said. Expect that to continue to happen. Try that's exactly what he said. Hey, that's about. That's why I said before. I don't watch all those videos. I already know what's going to happen. Maybe they'll, you know, have a trial and pretend, and they'll do a hashtag, and we'll all, you know, get our protests and go outside and put our hoodies on. And oh, down! No justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. It's a witness. It's a it's a witness, Gus, on what happens in war, and protesting against your enemy is not going to fix the problem. Seen it before. Seen it before. It's 2020. Got to have a much more sophisticated understanding of what white supremacy racism is, how it works, what it means to be white. Much more sophisticated. But... Yes, indeed, ProduceJustice.com, Mr. Fuller's work, always helpful. Uh, again, we have about, I don't know, 35 minutes uh, before folks are, or before our guest, Dr. Perry, uh, joins us for the evening. We'll discuss his book, Know Your Price. Uh, we'll encourage folks do some writing. Uh, might be constructive to even journal during this time period. Maybe I should have said that at the beginning of the so-called crisis, but uh, hopefully this will, you know, uh, we won't have to do any more of this. Hopefully things will work well. Uh, everybody will be safe. Uh, everybody will be smart, intelligent when we go out and what have you, and we won't have uh, a huge spike in illnesses and all the rest of it. We can kind of resume some sense of normalcy with our distancing and all that uh, until things are figured out. Hopefully that's the way it will go. Um, but, man, with all of this zaniness, do some writing. Uh, serious writing within the context of white supremacy racism. Uh, it can be journaling. That might be helpful for folks if you're having some anxiety and stress and all of this to be able to journal to try to help you organize your thoughts uh, and get some clarity about specifically what you're upset about and ways that you can help kind of resolve some of those problems, try to mitigate some of that. That might be helpful. Uh, even just for getting to the other side, just thinking that way that you are going to get through this uh, and writing 
uh, about how you felt, what was stressful uh, about all of this, if this is something that you can read back on, reflect once we get through all of this. Do some writing. It can be serious writing. If we do have people that are at home, uh, and your work schedule has been disrupted, so if you have a little bit more time than you normally would, do some writing. If you have writing projects, if it's a blog, I wouldn't care if it's big or small. If it's a book project, if it's a blog project, I know we have people <clears throat> who are into cooking, if it's recipes or doing a vlog uh, to encourage people to eat healthy, do it. At least you can start working on it. You can carve out a little bit of time. Uh, each day if you know this has disrupted your schedule. I know some people they have a reduced work schedule. So if you have uh, maybe an extra 16 hours that you normally wouldn't have or something like that a week, hey, I'm going to carve out two hours of that. You know, you need to be greedy. I'm going to carve out three hours of that per week as long as you know this continues. That'll be my right time. You know, I'll pick a, a quiet location. It's getting warmer outside, so. Uh, you might be able to get, if you have a laptop, your phone, tablet, pen and pad even. We can go prehistoric, right? Um, you can pick a quiet spot because it's getting warmer. You can go outside. Parks are open. You can go to the park provided they don't have racists there with their dogs off a leash. You could be in your house if you've got a quiet area or sit in your yard, your patio, your porch, whatever. Find a location where you can sit, enjoy, organize your thoughts, and do a little writing. I think that is constructive, certainly doing some reading, but reading and writing, both very important uh, in the system of white supremacy, racism. Glad to be having a black author with us uh, today, uh, again, in about 24 minutes, 23 minutes. Whew, let's see. Uh, did also uh, want to get in Brazil. Last week we had Marquise Treve on the program, black male. He was born in Detroit, mentioned again. Uh, he's been in Brazil no, uh, for years. He's been on the program a few times. He was with us uh, last Tuesday. Uh, he was with us before in 2017. Uh, at the time that he spoke with us last week, Brazil had the third most cases of the coronavirus in the world. Now there are two. Even Mr. Treve, he wrote an article uh, since being a guest on our program, his uh, content, he hosts blackwomenofbrazil.com. You can go and check out his uh, most recent report on that dramatic spike. And I think it's, it has jumped so fast, he was writing the report, and he was going off what it was when he was with us just a couple days ago, that they were number three in the world. While writing the report, he looked again, and now was number two. And the same thing, black people, and the exact same thing, not taking it serious. They're present. Ah, this is goofy. Ah, it's not that big a deal. I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not social distancing. I'm a tough guy. Look at me. Watch me do push-ups. Like, anyway, uh, Mr. Trevay has continued to write. Uh, I have said consistently that because uh, there's such a high population of black people in Brazil, more so than even here in the U.S., we should pay attention to what's happening there. Uh, those of us who study uh, racism, white supremacy as a global system, we should be mindful of what's happening there, especially since there seem to be a lot of parallels. It seems very similar uh, to what's happening here in the U.S. 
just be mindful. I'm not saying that you got to make that a whole project, you know, write a thesis on it or anything, but just be mindful. Uh, you can check different news outlets. Uh, they're talking about it. You can check Black Women of Brazil. I just told you. You can go to his website, check it out. Uh, it's being talked about on different uh, U.S. news outlets and uh, foreign outlets. I've seen the BBC. They've been talking uh, about what's happening in Brazil. Uh, other sites as well. I was going to say you could get some Brazil news sites, but then probably in Portuguese, but you can get a translator. Anyway, you should be mindful of what's happening down there, I think. Uh, could be informative uh, to just studying this whole crisis and in general for people who have questions, suspicions about what's happening with the virus. I know I do. People who feel like they don't understand it all, they even have doubts about it. Can be good to get information from a global perspective uh, to help get a more accurate understanding of what's taking place on the planet. Uh, double check in again. If folks have anything that they want to address uh, before we get to our guest, Dr. Andre Perry, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to join in. Uh, let's see, non-Clemson grad, did you have a question, comment you wanted to get in? Yes. Hi, Gus. This is Missy. How are you? Right, poorly. So good to hear from you all. Good, good, good. Um, I just wanted to, in terms of Memorial Day, um, there was a soldier in South Carolina um, who passed away or died in Afghanistan. And I read some of the articles that were written up about him. Um, he was 25 years old, passed away a week ago. And it said it was non-combat related incident. And then um, I guess the Department of Defense, it said the incident is under investigation. And I didn't want to like ask anybody, like it just it just sounded suspicious um, that they said that it was under investigation. Like what, what could have happened in Afghanistan that he, he passed away, he was young um, and it wasn't related to do with anything with the war, um, so I'm just wondering, like, you know, how safe are are non-white people or black people over there, um, where there's a whole bunch of guns and alcohol and a lot of time on their hands in high-stress situations. Um, as far as the pandemic goes, uh, I've been doing like a lot of yoga and meditation for self-care, and then a lot of reading. So I great, uh, greatly appreciate the cows. And all the all the callers over the years who've called in and contributed commentary and analysis. Um, I worked through um, the autobiography of Malcolm X and Asada Shakur. Um, I worked through the psychology of, um, or I'm sorry, the wisdom of psychopaths. And on that note, like just protect your peace, all the listeners, um, when it comes to all these videos that they're releasing. Um, having to do with the deaths of black people because from the wisdom of psychopath um, a lot of people will apologize but they they have deceit behind their apology like the woman who recently uh, called the cops on the man in Central Park in New York City um, and then after she got caught and all these consequences came down on her like she wanted to apologize but um, like when you're a psychopath, you you just apologize and you show you want to express um, empathy and how sorry you are for what you did, but you can feign that empathy or feign those emotions when you have none. 
Um, and also, like, watching these videos or sharing the videos, like, so many people find enjoyment and a sense of exhilaration and excitement when watching those videos. So when you share them, just know that a lot of people on your timeline or your friends list or the public, um, they're going to get more joy out of watching the pain and suffering of black people. So it's just not worth it for yourself, and it's not worth it to share um, those, those lynchings with other people. And that's all. Yes, yes, I agree. Mm. Outstanding, Miss C. She was with us in VA for the uh, first yoga retreat. I think she even got some books and did some reading while she was there, always about the reading. I love it. Kevin Dutton, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. That was such uh, an important book. Man, uh, put that with The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. But, yeah, that was a really important book, um, just that worshiping of death. Exactly. That's Snuff flicks. It's racist porn. Just having content uh, where black people are dead and we get to swap the videos around on social media with hashtags and all the rest of it. It's, uh, we've used that term on here before. Racist porn. Terror porn, either way. Uh, but yeah, be real mindful uh, about swapping that content. It's the exact, that's what, it's the reason we got all those pictures of lynchings white people looking gleeful. They don't look guilty. No such thing as guilt or shame about it. It's total enjoyment. Ah, dead negro. Mm. Look at this. Look at this one. Uh, the caller in New Oh, the, the person, you said the soldier that died, it reminded me of Lavina Johnson. It's not like it's uh, a strange or it would be the first time that we have a black person in uniform uh, die under suspicious circumstances, uh, even overseas. Uh, like I said, it reminded me of Lavina Johnson. Uh, did you get the name of the soldier who died in this non-combat injury, or did they not give a name? They did. Um, his his first name is Traverius. Um, I'd have to look up his last name. Oh, okay. Let's see if we can find it. Hold on. Did you go to history? Yeah. Hold on. Uh, Gus, retired firefighter. You can take your time. Yes. Uh, did you get Did you get the report? I think I may have sent it to you. The report about the uh, about the, uh, the 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 mom, the white mom, who killed her autistic son, and said that two black males kid, kidnapped her son. I did. I forgot the uh, details of it, but I did see that. Yes. Okay. I just, just wanted to make sure. Yes. Uh, uh, Spanish, Spanish uh, speaking background, white female. Although her last name would probably throw you off, but you know, I mean, she's probably in some kind of way got legally committed to a white male whose primary language is, is English, and. Uh, she first attempt to kill the child by throwing him in, you know, one of the million, millions of canals in South Florida. And there were some witnesses. They didn't see her do it, but they, I think they may have saw the child close to the water, in the water, and somehow she recovered the child and went somewhere else and was successful. Uh, 
and then she called the police and said that two Negros, uh males uh, uh, came and kidnapped at knife point, something like that, knife point with, uh, with uh, uh, her and in turn grabbed the, the autistic uh, child and took off. And uh, within about maybe about a day or so. But another thing that was interesting about the article itself, because I always sometimes go and read the comments, because for the most part it's white people who does the commentary on stories like that. And every, I've read at least, at least 20 to 25 of the comments and absolutely none of them talked about the issue of the, the lie of the black males (laughs) that was reportedly was supposed to be the ones who kidnapped uh, uh, the, in other words, the, the nucleus of the, they didn't want to, it gave the appearance that they didn't want to deal with it. You know, so therefore they didn't report it in their writing, in in the in in, in their commentary, and I thought that was interesting. Thank you. Mm. Standard yeah. operating procedure. Uh, I would Pamela Evans Harris. Uh, if I can get her name in again, I'd said I had been thinking about her. Uh, she is greatly missed. Uh, many cows listeners, myself, Pamela Evans Harris, uh, Chicago. Uh, but she used to mention the case of Bonnie Sweden all the time. Uh, Bonnie Sweden, white mom in Pennsylvania, she said that two black guys stole her car with her daughter in it with this elaborate kidnapping. Uh, and it turned out she and her daughter were in Disney World down in Florida with retired firefighter and Mickey Mouse. Blame the Negros. Then they got uh, Susan Smith, I think she was in Texas, uh, where she killed her five children and Saint blamed it on the Negro. Charles Stewart, up in Massachusetts, shot his pregnant wife and killed her and blamed it on the Negro. Then he committed suicide once they found out it was him. And, by the way, they terrorized whole black neighborhoods going to find this, you know, Negro who shot and killed a pregnant white woman before. Oh, wait a minute. White guy did that. Whoops. Standard, you probably put that up there with the uh, Ahmad Arbery and what happened in Minnesota. Probably you can expect that to happen, too. Uh, for a white woman or a white man to go out and kill their whole family or kill their children. And, oh, yeah, Dr. Ross Allen, just last week he mentioned the case where it was white teenagers. They weren't even full-grown race soldiers yet. These were white teens. I think she was like 16 or 17. It was a white girl and her boyfriend, and they planned to loot the whole house. We just blame it on this nigger. And the whole SWAT team came out on the nigger's house like, what are you doing? Robin those people home. And it, he just got lucky that that little five-year-old was like, oh, wait a minute, the nigger didn't do it. The nanny did. They, yeah, they stole everything. <laughs> That's the system of white supremacy, folks. But yeah, the report, our uh, retired firefighter, uh, is talking about Patricia Ripley, uh, is her name. Patricia Ripley, she's the one who killed this uh, nine year old. And then the Negras, the Negras, it's not COVID 19. It's the Negras. That's, yeah, yeah. More of that to come as well. Uh, caller in New Jersey, did you have a Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry, Gus. I mean, my my cold is um, even though this is definitely not a laughing matter. Um, I do find just uh, just humor in it all because I mean it is just so predictable. Um, I I was talking to my cousin today, and I said, man, you know, once you <laughs> he gets mad at me because he says once I kind of we 
I kind of opened his eyes to it. You know, I said, I said, listen, you know, I mean, once you see it, you, you can't unsee it. <laughs> I mean, it's impossible, you know. And um, one of my codes, along with not sharing um, um, black men being murdered by um, race soldiers with or without a badge, um, that I, I don't, I don't participate in the Donald Trump um, bashing. Um, again, I, I've, I find more sport in pointing out the racism in the Democrats, being though, um, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of black people, uh, somehow, um, allow this game of good cop, bad cop, um, you know, um, you know, let me rush to the polls and, you know, it's going to be the Democrats that's going to basically stop, um, the world from, from crashing. So, uh, yeah, and um, just watching um, these uh, murders by um, by race soldiers by the hands of you know just you know killing black men, black women. You know, I just I just thought about Joe Biden's speech on the floor when he says uh, the people need to be locked up, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He says they're beyond the pale. You know, he said he cares not if we created them, you know, you know, we got to lock them up. (laughs) So, I mean, again, you know, um, just, just, you know, using uh, black people as cover to cover up crimes. I mean, again, I mean, white people are not ignorant about racism. Um, It's, you know, it's just, it's just, it's it's never a dull day in the uh, system of white supremacy. So um, I don't know if that's constructive of me to um, challenge people, uh, uh, victims' knowledge of the racism that comes from the Democratic Party. I guess that's just my way of letting them know that, you know, of saying, you know, like I told somebody today, I said, listen, I mean, yes, um, Donald Trump is a problem, but if we lived in a system of justice, Donald Trump wouldn't even be possible it wouldn't even be possible for him to become the president of the United States. Until we attack the entire system, this game that we play, you know, thinking that just going to the polls, voting for the Democrats is going to somehow ease the pain, ease the, uh, ease the pressure that's put on us from white supremacy. We're fooling ourselves. So yeah, that's, that's, that's all. That's all I have before the guests come. Much obliged, caller in New Jersey. Fooling ourselves, indeed. Just being truthful. And, you know, I think a lot of it just comes down to being able to, uh, Dr. Wells, and she used to use that metaphor, being able to connect the dots and see the patterns. Uh, That's why I've mentioned all of those names so people can look online if you don't. I've never heard of Bonnie Sweet. Look. S W. E-E-T-E-N, Sweden, Bonnie Sweden, Pennsylvania, Sharon uh, Smith, Charles Stewart. Look up some of these uh, cases if you have not uh, heard of them. And those are just the ones that I remember. There's a whole book uh, written about that, The Racial Hoax, uh, where white people do whatever. Uh, that's in uh, Men of Honor, but it's the reverse. See, told you everybody loves Cuba Gooding Jr. movies. Uh, he 
has to save a white man, of course, uh, risk his life uh, to save this white man, where this white man's partner says, forget this, I'm going to save my own hind parts. I'm getting out of here. I'm leaving you and this coon behind. So all this ends, and they look at the white man. Oh, you coward. You left the man behind. This is the Navy. You're never supposed to leave a white man behind. What's wrong with you? Uh, so they move forward, and so you get a medal. You're supposed to get a medal if you, you know, save uh, a white man's life in the Navy. You're supposed to get some type of recognition. Uh, so they say, oh, man, we can't give it to the coon. We have to give it to the coward, white man. We got a cowardly white man. We got a coon. Cowardly white man is worth more than a coon. So we'll give the medal to the cowardly white man. They have all the circumstance and make it official. And uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character is there. Man. He's based on a real person, I believe. I should know his name. That's my apologies. I should uh, give. I'll give out that information before we proceed because I think that is based on something that actually happened. Uh, Men of Honor. Keep a good. Hey Gus, can I can I get one more question? There, I wanted to ask you. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Um, what do you what do you think about? And I'm I'm noticing a pattern too with these videos that's going viral and and um, other um, black people filming the assault or the murder execution on film and what do you think about influencers basically shaming black people for not physically intervening you know what do you what do you what do you what do you think about that i mean you know because i I wouldn't me personally i'm not going to ask somebody to do what i wouldn't do even the whole um narrative um you know um, black people killing black people but george zimmerman's still alive and you know, my question to the person posing the question, well, you have two feet, two hands, you know, a vehicle, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Get get to traveling to Florida. So uh what do you what do you think about that? Carl Maxi Brashear is an authentic person, was a black male in the Navy victim of white supremacy. That who that's who Men of Honor is based on. Your question, sir. Uh, I, I think I said for a number of years, uh, I quote Mr. Fuller, where he says, uh, criticizing other black people, that is a sport enjoyed by all. Um, I've said for years, I agree with him, we really should resist that urge uh, to just criticize other black people, that you should have intervened. You know, you sat around and watched this happen, you should have done something. Or, you know, the officers who choked uh, this black male in Minnesota, you know, we should, you know, go round them up. And, and the person that's talking, you should be first in line. Like, now, and particularly in this era, like, nobody should be coming out and saying anything that it sounds like. In the era of the black identity extremists, nobody should be coming out and saying anything like that on social media or a public platform. Like, that is, in my view, why such a compo- uh, critical component of Mr. Fuller's uh, maximum emergency compensatory action uh, in terms of what he advocates for counterviolence, you're not talking about it. I'm not out here and blah, 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 and running off at the mouth. And then we sort of, how do they foil our plans? So many of our insurrections, they end up on. Maybe stop talking. That would be one. Two, uh, it's been my experience that people that do all this criticizing, I never hear, like, where the person makes this critique of, you know, uh, we got these coons here, you know, Gus and firefighter, rest of y'all, New Jersey, wherever else, you know, you just a bunch of coons sit here and whine about white people. You get out and go do something. You got this, you know, black guy got killed in Minnesota. Get out there and go find where they live at. You got your computer. You all sit around here and are so smart. Got your iPhones. Why don't you go find them and do something? Or pick out one. Breonna Taylor's killers. Why don't you go down to Kentucky and do something about that? You all are just a bunch of 
coons. The people that do that, it's not like I ever hear them, like they stop their critique and then they go commit counter-violence. It doesn't work that way. They just come back the next week and do another critique of a new set of black people and call them coons and cowards and all the rest. But I said, yeah, if that's your conclusion, black people are cowards. We just keep allowing this to happen, you know, you included, whoever is making the critique. But if that's your conclusion, we deserve what we get, right? We're cowards. We're lame. We don't fight back. We're supposed to get all this, right? Right. I don't pay attention to any of that. I don't fight those people. Uh, the folks that I've heard, they generally don't even engage in logical conversation around any of this. When you point out it's been tons of black people, more than you can name, uh, who've engaged in counterviolence, who said, yeah, I'm upset with white people. I'm going to go put hands on them right now. In fact, I'm going to go kill some white people right now. You can name tons of black people all the way up to modern times. That for us, y'all are just coons, and it should have been more. Okay, like I said, if that's your conclusion, no problem. You also are included in that as well, since you're not, you know, going around to strangle white people. So, no problem. We just continue to go about the business. But that's very kind, particularly in times like this. That's been something that I've observed a lot. I guess it's almost time for our guests, but that's something I've been observed a lot when it's very stressful, when it's been a lot of these shootings all at the same time. I'd say this is ex- like unprecedented stress because of the COVID situation and how that's disrupting everything and then to have all these shootings and incidents on top of that and how the virus is impacting black people and everything like extraordinary stress that is very common where it ends up turning to other black people and we get upset and start, you know, fault finding with how we respond uh, to all of this. I remember when President Obama was in office, a lot of people got mad at him. All this is happening, and why aren't you doing something about Trayvon Martin? You're a worthless coon. And why aren't you doing something about uh, Michael Brown Jr. and Eric Garner and Sandra Bland? You're a worthless coon. Why don't you do something? You sat up there, we did all this, and blah, 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 and fussing with other black people. I remember there was a lot of that as well. Uh, black people, you know, should have done better. You should have, just what you said, you should have went and got George Zimmerman. You know, should have done all that. That's very common. It's not worth a nickel. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> use logic. One of, Mr. Fuller says that one of our favorite pastimes, criticizing how other black people respond to racism. Try not to do it yourself. All right, it's been 9 o'clock. Folks, can let us know if that was uh, an answer to the question or not, but we will get our guest on the line with us, Dr. Andre Perry, author of Know Your Price. We'll talk about some of the incidents that we just spoke on. Let's see if we can get him live on the line with us. Hello? Uh, greetings, Dr. Hello? Perry. Yep, I'm ready. Outstanding. Uh, all righty. We should be live. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade. Uh, so we hung out uh, for our hour. Much obliged to all the folks who chimed in uh, with their thoughts, questions, observations. Retired firefighter, uh, caller New Jersey, Miss C, South Carolina. Uh, we'll get the name of the veteran in South Carolina, too. Uh, some of the things that we've just been chatting about, mostly racism, we will continue. We'll just weave them right into our dialogue uh, on a book that just came out this year. Didn't have anything to do with COVID-19 ostensibly, but it does have quite a bit to do with COVID-19. Uh, quite a bit. Uh, you'll see as we get uh, into the book, uh, I, I do have to pause. I guess I could have done this while we were kicking it for the last hour, but I'll get it in now. Uh, this book, I, I had said this book, it uh, 
kind of does a, a deep investigation uh, into some, a few uh, of the U.S. cities that have a large population of black people. And I mentioned some of those cities, New Orleans being one. We hear at the context of white supremacy, we've done 11 plus years of broadcasting. Uh, I think we've done signature work. Uh, on New Orleans, uh, just we've done so many programs at Hurricane Katrina and so many things that have happened uh, subsequently are so important with regards to understanding white supremacy, racism, what it is, how it works. Uh, but our feature or signature work, including uh, Kimberly Rivers Roberts, she was on the program. She did the documentary film Fear No Gumbo. Uh, Gary Rivlin, writer at The New York Times, he wrote the book uh, Katrina After the Flood. Really important detailed information about how white supremacy racism impacted all aspects of what happened with the storm, particularly afterwards. Uh, June Cross, a black journalist, she was on the program. She did the documentary film for uh, PBS, The Old Man and the Storm. Uh, Anitra Brown, she is the editor uh, of the New Orleans Tribune. They did just stellar work, have done, did and have done stellar work on Hurricane Katrina and New Orleans in general uh, discussing racism, including the COVID-19 crisis. I was reading some of their reporting uh, just today from Anitra Brown uh, and A.C. Thompson. This is not exhaustive, just kind of scratching the surface of some of the coverage. But A.C. Thompson, what I think is one of the most uh, important, uh, his work at ProPublica, the white terrorist vigilantes uh, who hunted and killed black people uh, after Hurricane Katrina. I don't think that got nearly as much attention as Black looters and Kanye West, and George Bush, and a whole lot of other things that amounted to be silliness sometimes. Uh, white vigilantes going out to hunt and kill black people, uh, confirmed kill, sometimes with a badge, sometimes without, but extremely important. A.C. Thompson uh, has reported ProPublica, uh, one of our first set of guests way back in 2009, but lots of signature work on. New Orleans. Uh, Some of that that comes right up in the book today. I was so surprised. Like, wow, look at all that on New Orleans. Anywho, uh, our Mm. guest for the broadcast today, uh, I saw him. He was talking about the book and they were talking about COVID-19. He gave one of the or he gave the second best again. Andrew Young killed it. Best quote easily uh, of the pandemic. And he was talking about Atlanta mentioned in the book. He was talking to Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms mentioned in the book. And he was telling her after they were calling her a nigger about shutting down the city over COVID-19. He said the sickness is white supremacy easily. Best quote of the crisis so far. The second best is in our book. Nice to be in good company with Andrew Young. The second best. Nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve say that one all the time when people are trying to make it seem like there's something uniquely lazy or uh, some sort of deficit special to black people no there is nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve absolutely uh the book we are discussing today know your price valuing black lives and property in america's black cities like new orleans Detroit, Washington, D.C. I said it before. I'm just making sure I repeat it again. I think almost all of the cities that get mentioned in his book are so-called hotspots for the COVID-19 virus. Woof. Mm -hmm. Really excited about the broadcast. So happy we could be flexible with the scheduling so we could make it happen. Joining us live, our guest, Dr. Andre M. Perry. Dr. Perry, are you with us, sir? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? 
Uh, you are good. Your volume, uh, your volume dropped a little bit, but we can't hear you. I guess if you can make sure to speak up, uh, but we can't hear you. Okay, very good. Awesome. Uh, for our listeners, I'm sure we have some folks uh, who either have not read your book and or this will be their first time hearing from you. Uh, if you'd like, can you give us kind of a, a brief introduction, who you are and the work you do before we get started? Yeah, I'm a fellow at the Brookings Institution where I study assets in black majority cities where the, where the share of the black population is greater than 50%. And I look at assets in those cities, things of strength, um, so physical structures, people, leadership. But I look for things that have been devalued by racism. And what I mean by devalued is where their price is actually lower than their actual worth. And so I run a bunch of studies and run a bunch of data to look at the actual value um, or the penalty that is placed, what we commonly refer to as the black tax, that is placed on our assets. And um, my signature study, which sort of anchors the book, um, examine home prices in um, black majority neighborhoods. And I compared them to areas where the share of the black population is less than 1%. And most people know that that homes in black neighborhoods are priced lower, but most people will say, oh, that's because of education. That's because of crime. That's because of the gas stations in them. Well, those are all things we can control for in a study. So I did that. I controlled for um, education, crime, walkability, all those fancy Zillow metrics you, you see. And, and, and so I had an apples-to-apples apples comparison. And what we found astounds that homes in black neighborhoods, the same home, the equivalent home, the same social conditions, are priced 23% lower, about 48000 per home, about $156 billion in lost equity in black neighborhoods. It's, you know, so that $156 billion could have funded uh, more than $8 million college degrees at a public university. It would have funded more than four million startup businesses, replace the Pikes and Flint, Michigan, 3,000 times over. It's more than double the opioid crisis. It's a big number. But, but that devaluation in homes, and homes is important because it also, uh, municipalities use that money to, to fund education, policing, infrastructure. But that same um, phenomenon in housing occurs in all of our assets. It occurs, it occurs by even our families. I talk about how our family constructions are devalued. Um, I, you know, part of the book I talk about how I was raised. I was reared by an older woman who took in kids um, from the neighborhood because um, of the economic struggles of that, our fam that our parents faced, and she took in kids. And later in life I learned um, through the Moynihan Report that her practices were devalued or seen as deviant and she was considered putting children in harm's way but for me you know what this research showed is no that family construction was actually a a positive thing and obviously um i'm i'm alive i i progressed 
um, because of that family or because of that construction. It was obvious an asset, but it, it, it was such a metaphor for so many assets in our lives, whether it's education, healthcare, um, uh, um, electoral politics. All of these things are strong, but we are devalued nonetheless context of white supremacy for folks who've not seen you uh you are a black male dr perry yes i'm i'm a black male um and uh my father i mean the i'm from the hood in in pittsburgh in a a place called wilkinsburg pennsylvania um grew up there i lived in but i did live in new orleans for 14 years so i write a lot about new orleans to spend a lot of time in atlanta my father was murdered in prison in um, in a prison outside of Detroit, Jackson um, Penitentiary. Um, but uh, so I've had a lot of time in black cities, and and then wherever I've been, those black cities recognize my value. They found ways to nurture me educationally, and so I have nothing but love for black cities. But obviously, I work at the, the Brookings Institution. I work, I've been an academic all my life. I've been a longtime professor. Um, and along the way, I've always heard how negative uh, black things were, black communities were, are supposed to be. And, um, and it defied my entire existence. And so this book, it, it really goes back, it, it pushes back against that narrative that the conditions of black cities and, and neighborhoods are a direct result of the individual behaviors in them. So that's where it, it, that saying, there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't all come from. It's not our moral decisions and moral failings and bad choices and all those things you know you hear all the time. It all starts at home. Whenever something goes wrong, people say, it all starts at home. Well, what we should be saying that in regards to is the devaluation of our homes, not because of people. We, we are no more morally uh, bereft than any other community. You know, so, but we got to get rid of this notion that we are deviant. What's deviant is the devaluation of our, our assets, our strength, our property, our very life. How many times? Have we seen people that struck down? I mean, today, uh, um, a sad day, George Floyd murdered in the street. And you know that, that the way that that cop put his knee on the neck, it was done dozens, if not hundreds of times. So it, that, that devaluation of that life is so regular, so built in to our um, American creed. And so what I, this book really, at least for me, what I try to do is to, 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 to attack it at its heart, to say, hey, no, no, there's nothing wrong with us. There is a whole lot wrong with racism, with white supremacy, with, with bigotry, with structural racism. And we need to get at those things. And guess what? Black people will be just fine. This broadcast, the cows, uh, I use the term 
racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. And I use the same definition for both terms. Uh, The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, Do you think Mm. such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Well, I I, I said this numerous times that whiteness is the informal social security program for, um, for America, that we've privileged whiteness in the purchasing of homes within um, in policy, in foreign policy, in immigration policy, we privilege whiteness, and um, it, it is at the no at the expense of black dignity, worth, wealth, and value. And so, I have no problem with that definition. I generally, because I, I work on on policy, I, I tend to. Um, talk about structural racism because um, a lot of my focus work on governmental policy, um, and I think white supremacy goes beyond even it's b- even bigger than that. That global system includes ways and mores and other things, um, um, symbols and traditions that extend beyond policy, sort of that informal policy that we don't necessarily see on. But I, I don't have a problem with that. I generally, but my, my work um, is really focused on making policy corrections, um, significant ones um, in, a, in, a, um, in a U.S. context for the most part. Okay. Much obliged for that. I know sometimes or frequently yeah. we'll have individuals classified as white on the program and they'll do a lot of buckets of words uh, as opposed to just you know either yes I agree or no I don't and then yeah. we can move forward like we're just chatting being adult if you don't agree it's no problem yeah I do point and I and the reason I start with my definition uh, I think that's super important so many times we talk about racism white supremacy and there's no definition given we all talk about it as though we know what this word means and or we all talk about it as though we all have the same definition for this term And we do not. uh, And that is extremely important. I just point out for listeners, because I do uh, point out metaphors regularly on the broadcast. Words are very important. Social security program for white people is not how I would describe white supremacy racism, a system that murders and terrorizes black people deliberately all the time. Not just Mr. Floyd, but all the time. Uh, I would not call Mm -hmm. that a social security program. Words are very, very important. Uh, but be that well, it is for white people. Yeah, that, I, what I'm what I'm getting at is that that the devaluation of property was intentional, and it is intentional to benefit some and and to suppress others. And so, for me, like I mean, in in, in a very real sense, I mean, let's look at the the uh, the New Deal. Who benefited from the New Deal, and who didn't? And there's a reason why. And so when I say that, it, it, it's really, for me, it's been, you know, slavery, obviously. It benefited whites in the country. That it was their, that was their economic engine. 
it wasn't ingenuity and all this other. It was built on the backs of black people. And so when I say Social Security, it, it generally means it was built to bolster to white, white lives, not necessarily to um, Social Security in a sort of um, uh, general sense for everyone. Right on. I would just repeat what I said again. In a system designed to have deliberate terrorism, I don't think Social Security program is an accurate metaphor, but that's just my view. Mm -hmm. The other point I would raise, I think for slavery, that would not just be white people in the U.S. benefiting. That would be white people in the world benefiting. And that's another important point. My definition, this is global. That is very important. You said your research is focused on U.S. policy and things that happen in the U.S. Mine is white people collectively work together to keep this moving worldwide uh moving specifically well i guess even before i get to your text you said you were in new orleans what part of the world are you in now dr perry oh i'm in dc i'm in dc yeah so i i'm here in another chocolate city becoming less so but um i'm here in dc i always find myself in these chocolate cities (laughs) <laughs> Latte, they call DC now. Okay, which is still uh, a hot spot uh, for the so-called coronavirus, yeah. as they say. What What is the status in terms of where you all are at with restrictions and all of that? Oh, we're we're um, under uh, essentially uh, stay-at-home stay orders until June 9th or tenth or something like that. Cases are still increasing. You know, uh, we we have about. 200, 300 cases per day, um, and it's been holding steady. Um, obviously, a lot of those cases have, uh, have, have occurred in um, southeast um, D.C., which is the um, black section of D.C., but blacker section of D.C. Um, and so we'll, you know, unfortunately, we'll be in this, I'm holding pattern for a while. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but um, you know that the underlying conditions um, were caused by racism. I mean, the 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 housing inequality, the 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 the, the, the density, all of these things that um, predict for the the spread were caused by structural racism. And so, again, you, you were right on. A lot of folks look at my, my research and they go, oh, he's pointing out all the, the reasons why the, 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 the um, COVID is spreading. And I'm like, well, black folks have been in an epidemic long before COVID. I mean, there's, um, you know, we talk about um, New Orleans, uh, Hurricane Katrina, there's going to be hurricane, more Hurricane Katrina's because of where we live in lower-lying areas of the city with substandard housing, limited um, insurance, all these different factors. Um, we, we have these disasters waiting to happen because of structural racism. So um, it's, I, I didn't plan for to, to release a book during a pandemic, but... Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, talks and books about structural racism never get old. They're never out of fashion. And so my book is generally right on time 
and that's what a lot of people are saying. But I, I tell people it's sad. It's a sad statement. I could have released my book two years ago, 20 years ago, and it would have resonated. And it's just resonating because um, of this event. But it, it, it will, there's always an incident that will, will make my work relevant. Mm. Hopefully we will change that. So that will not be the case yeah, sometime absolutely. in the near future. Afrofuturism will be making your work obsolete. How about that? Uh, you in the, uh, and my work too. I can retire from this too. Put the mic down. Um, you uh, in the book, you write your, your zip code is a stronger predictor of your health than your genetic code. Harvard researcher David Williams used his catchphrase at a 2013 lecture at the University of Missouri. Williams' statement is backed by his extensive research on the social social determinants of health. Uh, we've had uh, some coronavirus truthers uh, in our listening audience, black people, some of them not even in our listening audience, uh, who feel like, hey, a lot of these numbers about black people being impacted by COVID-19, uh, we think there's something deceptive about them and saying that black people are being disproportionately impacted. Uh, is there... Any reason uh, that you've seen thus far to doubt the numbers that you've seen about how black people are being impacted in D.C. and or the U.S. in general? No, I have no reason to doubt these numbers. It's um, the the underlying. Okay, let's be clear. COVID um, does not discriminate that the if you are this a person exposed to it, you have the same likelihood whatever your race is, uh, COVID doesn't discriminate, but past policies have. And so we are in areas that are very vulnerable. In addition, we're in occupations because of racism that make us vulnerable. Now, uh, you know, it's only 20% of black folks actually have the luxury of working inside of their home. Most of us have to go outside to work. We are the bus drivers. We are the grocery store clerks. We, 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 we deliver the mail. So we're, our professions are um, more likely to um, uh, can contract the illness. And then we live in, in areas where there's much more intergenerational housing, um, more concentration of folks. We go to the same stores. We go to the same churches. And so, but a lot of that was shaped by racism, you know. So uh, I'm 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 fortunate. I'm a I'm a researcher, so I can do a lot of my work from home. But if, when you think about the educational op- opportunities that have been denied to Black people, not many people are like me because of that. And so um, racism has limited um, our ability to protect ourselves. And 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 in addition, let's be clear, wealth is a big predictor of health. Um, and so when you lack wealth, you, you lack that natural buffer to sec- um, seclude yourself, to, to get the health care. You, know, you don't have the, I mean, when you don't have wealth, you generally don't have the, the health benefits and, and, and all the other things that, that um, assist you in, in times of need. And so all of these things were essentially uh, um, all the, the things that pr- protect us um, we've been denied because of, of racism 
And that's what I, I show a lot of people point to my book and they say, hey, look at, let's look at housing, let's look at education, let's look at health care, let's look at all these different things. And, um, and so my book really does lay out, you know, way, uh, where we should be investing if we want to provide people um, protection. Really important points, things that we've been, I've been pointing to some of the same points out for folks who have doubts or suspicions uh, about whether or not this is really impacting black people, that uh, black people make up a lot of the folks that are so-called essential workers and black people, medical mm-hmm. apartheid in my top five for favorite books, Harriet A. Washington, black people are not mm-hmm. treated yeah. well at the hospitals and for lots of different reasons, I can see why absolutely this would be a problem. Uh, in fact, reminded me so much, Harriet A. Washington has two books in my top 10, uh, medical apartheid and a terrible thing to waste, which also does a lot to explain what's happening here. Uh, you write, uh, this is on page 54 for proof. You need to go no further than past and present redlining predatory lending practices, environmental racism that subjects our communities to disproportionate exposure to pollution and hazardous waste, harmful zoning practices that make us susceptible to flooding New Orleans and post disaster displacement New Orleans again, as well as discriminatory drug sentencing and stop and frisk laws that reflect policymakers extreme disregard for black people. All these injustices take years off our lives and values from our homes. Well said. Uh, just skipping to page 69 to get my question in on 69. You write racism is not a mere distraction. Inserting racist language has been the reliable prelude to codifying bigotry into law. Racial attitudes baked into Baltimore's housing policy in 1910 became a model for racial housing covenants across the country. Baltimore's then mayor, J. Barry Mahool's negative view of black people was laid bare in his explanation of the policy. Blacks should be quarantined in isolated slums in order to reduce the incidence of civil disturbance to prevent the spread of communicable disease into the nearby white neighborhoods and to protect property values among the white majority. We have some (laughs) listeners and we have even had a guest, Dr. Sylvia Hood Washington in Chicago hotspot, who said she also fears that as a result of all of this, you could see a move to say, hey, black people are the spreaders of COVID quarantine them, keep them away. Let's put them all, you know, in quarantine jail or someplace so that they don't infect the rest of the good white people. Do you have any fears that the attitudes of former Baltimore Mayor Mahool could become widespread in this COVID pandemic associating black people with COVID-19? Oh, it, it already has. I mean, let's be clear. When you said, when you have governors saying in Georgia, let's open up the barber shops first and the nail salons first. What were they saying? People don't understand there are more black-owned barbershops than white-owned barbershops. We represent only 13, about 13% of the population, but we own more barbershops um, than any other racial group. When you say, hey, um, black people, you go to work in that particular industry first, they're essentially saying, let's make black people the sacrificial lambs of the economy. You know, when you, when you don't provide the health insurance, the unemployment insurance, and you say, you know, essential workers, you go out there, but we're not, give, we're not going to give you essential benefits. We're just, we, we, and you can't get any more 
of a devaluation of life to, to labor than that. And that's been, you know, that's the, the, the legacy of slavery, essentially reducing us to a labor function. And yet we see this today to say, hey, go out there, essential worker, go out there, but we won't give you the benefits. We won't give you the pay. We won't give you the, the medical equipment. But we do want you to kickstart this economy. I mean, we've been down this road before. We've been down this road before. Wow. The uh, I know there were several other folks who felt the same way about uh, the governor uh, of Georgia uh, saying, you know, barbershops, that they felt there was some type of uh, implied code uh, in that. We've had a number, even some white guests uh, who took a pause uh, at what was happening with some of the languaging around some of that, uh, how they relaxed the restrictions in certain areas. Uh, let's see on. I guess to kind of go back, you touched on it a little bit. You make so many aspects of the book personal, like you already talked about growing up and, and being in a, I guess not the normal, normal nuclear family structure that is promoted here in the U S and then even talking about your own family situation with you and your, your wife, is it, uh, jo- uh, can you pronounce it from joy, joy, joy. Okay. Joy, a career. Yeah. Yeah. Joy, you, uh, and your wife's, uh, challenges, uh, to have a biological child. I mean, just a lot of, really personal uh, sides to how racism, white supremacy impacts you and even impacts the research that you do. Uh, why did you include so much of your personal narrative in the text? Oh, because what many researchers do is to throw stones and, and hide their hands. You know, that there, there is nothing rigorous about white supremacy. Nothing. And whiteness gets in the way of rigor. But yet when we produce research, we say, oh, I am being sort of the, the dispassionate, removed researcher looking at things um, in a removed way, when in fact, all of our um, biases impact our framing of the problem, the framing of the solution, um, the questions we ask. And so I put all my stuff up front. I say, hey, Racism has impacted me, my family. This is why I'm writing a book about assets in black communities, because my very life depends on it. My, the life of my community depends on it. I wish more people put up front why, why they're writing what they're writing, and good or bad, you know, good or bad, um, but not enough researchers put that out there. This is very, per- all research is personal, very personal. And so this is um, something for me that I needed to show. I needed to, and I needed other research to know when you're talking about the black family, you're talking about me. You're talking about my family. And I'm here. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, and I'm not, I, so that, that, that's where it comes from. It's, research is personal. And, but we need to be honest about what our personal um, backgrounds bring or offer in, or, or in, in, our, in the problems we pursue. Joining us live from the nation's capital, Dr. Andre M. Perry, author of Know Your Price. Uh, in the book, 
you talk about uh, black cities. Uh, you said before, when you say black cities, are you just talking about an area that has more than 50 percent of the residents are black? Is that all it all it has to be the case to qualify as a black city? Yeah, there, and people don't understand that there are 1,200 black majority cities all across the United States, 1,200, mm. in which the share of the black population is 50% and greater. And, and the number is increasing. You know, it's, it's not decreasing, it's increasing, even though our population has been relatively um, stagnant over time. We've been 13% um, for quite a while. But the number of black majority cities incre- increasing, meaning that, um, and that they're being created by a number of ways. White flight, obviously, um, black um, movement into the suburbs. Um, there, there's actually in many cities where black people and white people are moving into places rapidly, and there's and there are a lot of new black cities just emerging. I mean, some some cities are literally within the last thirty years have gone from zero population to fifty sixty thousand, and so. Um, we, we are concentrating more and more in municipalities and it offers an opportunity, um, in some cases, political opportunities, economic opportunities. And so I, I, I really track where we are living and why. And so, so this book comes out of that, that larger body of research that I do day in and day out. Hmm. Okay. That now, this is why I, I use my my definition uh, system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I've concluded when you have a whole lot of black people in a city, generally that does not amount to very much positive uh, for the black residents that live there. Like it's not just like uh, you have over fifty percent of the black people in Detroit, so hey, we're going to be able to wield a lot of power and make you know a lot of great changes for black residents. Like that rarely. Uh, if ever happens, like maybe you get a black mayor, but even that doesn't do a whole lot like Ray Nagin, New Orleans, Kwame Kilpatrick uh, in Detroit. In fact, you mentioned both of these folks uh, in the text. Uh, and I said, wow, both of these folks ended up with kind of uh, mm, inglorious conclusions to their political careers, I guess, to minimize it. But I uh-huh. mentioned that uh, you didn't in- include their prison sentences uh, in the book, which, you know, that's not the focus of the book. But I thought it was important right. because the aspect of white supremacy racism with Ray Nagin, and especially you talk about it in the book after he made that chocolate uh, city comment after Hurricane Katrina and the levee failure and saying we're going to get our black people back, which did not happen, uh, that that rank that that rankled a lot of white people, they were upset with Ray Nagin. Like, what do you mean? This is going to remain a chocolate city. And that's not that all of that. And when he got arrested, man, the term we, I said, we did signature work on New Orleans. I don't know if you were in, uh, still in New Orleans when he was arrested yeah. and had the c- conviction and everything. I was. Man, the term, I broke out my German on him. I said, schadenfreude. I said, it looks like a whole lot of white people look very satisfied, like good riddance, Ray Nagin. We remember what you said about Chocolate City. Get on out of here. Don't drop the soap. And they did the exact same thing a thousand miles away in Detroit when Kwame Kilpatrick got sentenced for his, you know, misdeeds while in office mayor of Detroit. And in fact, they were extra special in Detroit. In Detroit, when he got sentenced, 
they had a plane flying overhead that said, don't drop the soap, Kwame. <laughs> like, I remember I played the report. I, I was stunned. Like, who? I mean, that is not cheap. Like, it's not $5 to do, you know, air writing. Don't drop the soap right. in the plane, in the sky. Thank goodness Kwame Kilpatrick. Like, wow, it was that bad? I just wanted you to, to comment. Did you observe that? I don't know about Kwame Kilpatrick, <laughs> but you were there for Ray Nagin. Shot in Florida. Were white people enjoying him going to jail? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you brought up the reason why he, they're in the book is because they are they were both blamed for the troubles of those cities when, in fact, it was always white supremacy, structural racism, um, um, injustice in the main that has always made um, New Orleans and Detroit vulnerable to any any kind of economic shock um, it, it, it was not these two people but they they represented black folk and so when you can um, jail those folks and they were not and I'm not a an apologist for Onig, um, or, uh, or 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 Nagin or I'm not an apologist uh, but let's be clear that the real reason why those cities are troubled are because, uh, in, in the case of Detroit, white flight, corporate welfare, um, uh, um, in the, 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 the big three essentially um, de- uh, controlling economic policy in the, in, the, in the region. And New Orleans is, it has always been a devaluation of black people in all systems. Uh, and so uh, those are the real reasons why those cities struggle. It's not because of any one political figure or a, a school board or a, a city council. I mean, that's, it's laughable how we blame those, those things when you have these larger macro forces that really determine the trajectory of these cities. But, hey, if we can blame a, a Kilpatrick, then, hey, people celebrate. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I don't uh, see crowds of white people in North Carolina going to uh, celebrate and throw a parade about Senator Richard Barr and uh, the investigations about his shenanigans and did he do some insider trading about COVID-19 like I don't see or in Georgia uh, Senator Loeffler she's a white woman they dropped the investigation said they're not going to charge her today I don't see white people in Georgia like going out to protest and getting their gun you got to prosecute her she's getting away she made me her husband Senator Loeffler her husband is the head of the New York Stock Exchange and they're not even investigating yeah. we're good but they're not but Kwame Kilpatrick and Ray Nagin they're the worst ever they're the worst and they just let Ray Nagin out of jail for COVID-19 I just saw that that he got out they said he was older and yeah he got out at risk <laughs> you for- know, but, but, but that's the hypocrisy we've grown to live with what my devaluation research shows is that hey this this um, maladaptation to to abuse um, really comes out in the Washington research. And I just show that, hey, that, you know, the hypocrisies we see, we can, I can identify it in research, in pricing, in home prices, in education, in health care, that we see the impacts. 
they, they, like, you know, we on, you know, in books and in radio shows, we wax poetic about these things, but the reality is it's stripping us of wealth and our health, you know, in significant ways. And so that's what this book does. It, it provides that, that research so that people can see what, what we're up against and what we need to, to push back against. You speaking of your personal narrative in the book uh, and with New Orleans specifically, uh, as I said, we you know did signature work on Hurricane Katrina, the levee failure, the gutting of New Orleans public school system. Uh, you talk, I mean, talk about devaluation uh, of black educators and black children, yeah. black students. Uh, you talk about that from a very personal perspective, and you being involved. Uh, in the decision to terminate like thousands of black educators in New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina and the levee failure. I don't even think the waters uh, had fully retreated in all areas of the city yet. But yeah. just can, can you talk about your involvement and, and the genesis for that yeah. idea? Because I think that's important. Yeah, I write in the book, and I tell people that, you know, I was a charter leader, a charter school leader early on. Now, the difference is that the I was a professor at the University of New Orleans, where we had charter schools before Katrina. We treated them like laboratory schools. Um, but, you know, but after the storm, the sort of national charter movement came um, down on New Orleans, and, and, and a lot of the charter leaders um, took on, maybe like, the uh, no-tolerance policies, the and I, and I should back it was actually the school board that had to fire the 7,500 school employees because essentially now this is debatable, but it's my belief that the superintendent, the state superintendent, held on to the bailout money and to, to force the district to essentially fire, let go of all the employees, and then they. Um, it opened up the the number of charter schools, and then the charter uh, operators could hire who they want. So you really saw the devaluation, not just in the firing, but in who was rehired or who wasn't rehired and who was hired. Um, the the black school age population or the black teacher population dropped from about seventy percent to fifty percent. Um, and which resulted in like a, a like a three to four percent drop in the black middle class, and whenever you have that kind of drop in the middle class, that's enormous, enormous. I mean, it, one people talk about educational attainment. One of the strongest predictors of educational attainment is is class, and so when you cut the middle cut the middle class like that, man, you're you're, you're really countering everything you say you're trying to do, improve educational things. But um, in the, after the storm, I was a part of the charter movement, no question. I was one of the smiling faces of the movement. Um, I, I also let go of principles um, during that time. And what we see in the book is, uh, the, I think I, the, it's the apology we owe our students and teachers. And I offer an apology that um, that I was a part of that, that there, there's no way around that, that we were a part of that. And um, you got to own up to it. 
you got to say, hey, this was a negative, and you do so by um, – there's no really correcting that, but you, you have to do better moving forward. So a lot of this, the book is about doing better moving forward. Do you recall who was the state superintendent at the time? You said was kind of doing this. Oh, Cecil P. Card. No, it was Cecil P. Card at the time, and um, you know there it, it, there was a big lawsuit. Went to the um, state supreme court. Um, they eventually said that it was not unconstitutional in terms of. The firing was not unjust, but every, I mean, come on, it's also Louisiana <laughs> and that, you know, it was, it was a, it was a travesty. It was a travesty. Now, um, at the time I didn't necessarily know the weight of it. I didn't necessarily know all of the politics behind it, but I knew something was wrong. Um, I was a professor, and the dean at the time asked me to to manage the schools because I, I, I write about federal policy, and there was a lot of federal movement um, at the time um, in New Orleans, and so uh, it made sense for me to, to take on um, the charter schools, but it, it became... It was very noticeable. I became disaffected by the movement, that I started railing against it. I started demanding that we hire more black teachers. Um, I, and that's been my thing for since Katrina, hire more black. You want to improve education, you hire more black teachers. That's the bottom line. And, there's, and, and in that chapter, I lay out all the evidence that supports the added value of black teachers. Um, and so, but let me tell you, you, I, I can speak with authority on that because I was there and I, 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 I heard the racism. I saw the racism. I, you know, and, and I, I was stung by, it. you know, a lot of the struggles I talk about my wife and, and, and me, uh, were a result of the decisions I made. I, I, I firmly believe that. The decisions we made against fighting about fighting back against racism, and there's a backlash. Let me tell you, they go. There's not. It's nothing nice. They put millions in trying to destroy people. You know, um, it's just uh, we weathered some storms, and uh, and we're better for it. We came out on the other side better, uh, more informed, um, and. And so we're we're thankful for that, but let me tell you, um, it's nothing nice. It's nothing nice uh, when you're fighting racism. There there are real consequences, Mm -hmm. and um, so I, you know, we felt them, and I document a lot of it in the book. Context of white supremacy, Dr. Andre M. Perry. I wanted to read a quick paragraph on 143, but just is uh, Cecil Carr, is that a white person, the former superintendent, a white person or Cecil, not? A white uh, yeah, white, yeah, yeah, white, white guy. White, white guy. guy. Okay. On 143, 
Uh, you're right. This is uh, about the tea. Actually, before I get that, you said you saw it. And I, I certainly I read uh, the section where you talk about you and your wife's uh, difficulties, challenges, uh, having a biological child. But in terms of you said that you saw the racism in terms you mean things that you saw and heard about uh, the black teachers in New Orleans in terms of people saying things like flagrantly about wanting to get rid of them. Is is that the type of thing that you heard? Well, well all, I mean, there's subtle words like or phrases like i'm tired of people telling us telling us the way things used to be you know what that's what that is code word for is we don't want old black teachers you know and it was constant it was you also see it in um the the, the spike after hurricane katrina in suspensions and expulsions you know, it was people were kicking out kids of, of school after Hurricane Katrina, <laughs> where homelessness and a, a lack of housing was on the rise. You know, it, it, it was the meanness that during that time. That is, you just can't, you, you have to be there. And because I'm, I wasn't from New Orleans, um, it really, there were times where, I was just taken aback because it was like they are attacking New Orleanians for being from New Orleans. There's no the reason why. I mean, and this this is the privileges the privilege I had because I wasn't from New Orleans. You know, I was getting the job, I was getting the the promotion, I was getting the attention. But if you were from New Orleans, you were getting, you know, you you were getting burdened by um, systems and people and you know they folks were uh, recruiting others from other across the country to come in you know when you do that you're essentially saying we don't want black people here I mean we, we don't want them we, we need new people and you know you can't get more racist than that to say hey we're going to have a nationwide campaign to find teachers in New Orleans come on <laughs> that's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. But that's what happened. That's what happened. So I was right there. I was right there. Mm. Gary Rivlin, uh, we read his book, Katrina After the Flood, uh, in the book club, and he was a guest on the program in 2015, 10-year anniversary. Um, he said the turn they coined was yerps. Uh, for all of these whites that they brought into New Orleans after the levee failure and Katrina and the white vigilante violence uh, because they had so many that displaced the former black residents. Uh, but now I can get to 143. You write reducing the number of black teachers also robs white students of the opportunity to form critical relationships that could disrupt how racism is passed on to the next generation. Racist children become racist adults. Black teachers can help end the cycle. Alas, this was the lens that was clearly needed in New Orleans after the storm when instead education reform negatively affected black workforces. Uh, I wanted, do you have any evidence of white children, their cycle of becoming racist adults being yeah. interrupted. Let's hear it. Not anecdotes. Like wow. all I got to say is, in the 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 race for the Alabama Senate race, where Doug Jones eventually won um, that that seat, that um, session um, had left eventually, and um, I'm blanking on the 
the accused pedophile racist person. Now, um, the reason why I brought it up, people don't look at this as evidence, but voting is a form of evidence. People elected a a corrupt. Um, and now I'm talking. I'm sorry. I bounced. I went. I went from that that state senate race. But the, from that to the presidency, there is no way, no way a truly educated um, person would vote for Donald Trump unless they had some serious intellectual faults along the way. No way. <laughs> like we, and we got to be plain about that. Like, we talk about these education gaps on standardized tests, but we see an education gap in the voting behaviors of people every single day. The, the voting of these vile human beings is a sign that our educational system is broken. That's why civics is so important. <laughs> like, civics is so important. You're not just teaching about the branch of the government. You're teaching about the values that we should uphold in an election. And it is clear that people don't care or they value negative things, which is a sign of ignorance. And so for me, I've always said, hey, uh, this is an educational problem. Black people have the solution. <laughs> we need more black teachers. And, and so when I talk about, like, there's this big fight, should we have integration, should we not? And I, and I always say, well, the, one of the reasons why I support integration is because white children need black teachers. They literally need them. <laughs> like, I, I don't see a way out of this unless you get a disruptor in that thinking. And I think that the outcomes of black teachers on all children are strong. I mean, black teachers add value. Um, we have higher expectations. We suspend less. We, you know, there's a lot of positive things that black, it's not our black skin per se or brown skin. It's, but there's something about living in brown skin that makes us more aware of social economic forces. Um, and so and that's, that manifests itself in good teaching. And so for me, it's always been about, hey, we need more black teachers. <laughs> that's going to help the country. No question about it. Hmm. Okay. I certainly, uh, black teachers add value, enormous value. I, I agree, you know, 8,000%. But in terms of uh, black educators uh, interrupting white students uh, and stopping white children from becoming racists, uh, a white person in Alabama or a lot of white people in Alabama voting for Mr. Jones, as opposed to Roy Moore does not constitute Roy evidence Moore, uh, for me, just because uh, I lived in a world where president Obama was in the white house for eight years. I'm very sure there are some individuals classified as white who took two trips to the ballot box for president Obama, yet they still practice racism, white supremacy. 
So oh, yeah, I certainly right. Right think it. we could go down ballot <laughs> to senator or mayor or whatever else and have someone who practices racism, and they have no problem. I'm tired of Roy Moore. I don't like him for whatever reason. We'll let this nigra uh, get a turn. No problem. And I still suspect that a substantial population of white people did not vote for Mr. Jones. But I just I bring that up because we live, we have had white supremacy racism for centuries. There have been whole generations of white people in Alabama and elsewhere who didn't just have white teachers. They had white, excuse me, they didn't just have black teachers, black educators. They had black wet nurses and black people working in their houses who prepared food for them. I just want to finish this point and then I'll let you respond. Just that I have seen no evidence that white people being exposed to black people. Heck, President Obama has a white mother and white grandparents and even he, according to his own testimony, looked at some of their behavior at times and said, huh, this seems like the thinking or behavior of a racist. So even having black people doesn't interrupt that. Having black people in your so-called family doesn't interrupt that cycle. I certainly don't see how being exposed to a black educator for an hour a day for a year or five years is going to stop the overwhelming education influence that they have to function. Racist man, racist woman. Your response? Oh, well, I, I really do think that the reason why you see this big fight in terms of curriculum, now it's not necessarily teachers, but is what is not who teachers, but what is taught. The reason why there are these battles around history is because they know <laughs> that if we showed a more accurate depiction of, of history, that it would transform the thinking of who's a hero, who's not, who's who's worthy of investment, who's not. And so for me, you know, you talk about one of the largest battles that, that, that doesn't get talked about. It's around what is taught and who teaches. And it's deliberate. It is deliberate in states. It is not a coincidence that there is an overwhelming white woman teaching force. It is not a coincidence. And so, you know, so for me, it's like, uh, we've got to shift that. Like there, I don't, educationally it's not going to completely disrupt what folks learn. Remember most people learn, um, most learning occurs outside of school that, that, um, most people absorb things all around them. Um, well beyond the the schoolhouse walls. However, a lot goes on in school. So I, I, you know, I I say all the time we need more black teachers, not just for the benefit of black children, but to set the record straight about what America is. And and you know, and 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 I'm not talking just about sort of the the teachers we see in front of classrooms. Nicole Hannah-Jones, one of the reasons why the 1619 Project for many is so threatening is because it, it forces people to, to see, is this me? Is this who I am? You know, one of the things that, another thing is that for many white folks, they look at America um, in their own lifetime. They don't look beyond. They say, well, I wasn't racist. That wasn't me. That wasn't. I didn't know any slaves. You hear this all the time. And it's like they lack a sense of history. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, and 
they really have a, a bad understanding of policy and how policy can benefit people for generations. And so I do believe that on balance, more black teachers would disrupt that, that phenomenon, that it would force people to see themselves in the context of history. And if people were forced to see themselves in that, in that uh, um, horrible context, oh, more people would change, um, not all of them, but there would be more people who would be transformed. We have uh, folks who dialed in. We'll see if we can nab callers uh, who have questions for Dr. Andre M. Perry, author of Know Your Price. Uh, I think there are white people who have graduated from historically black colleges and universities that I'm not even sure that they would qualify to say that that cycle of racism has been interrupted, but I could be in error. Let's see. Our person at 0747, 0747, did you have a question for Dr. Perry? You should be with us. Uh, Gabby Heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, and hello, Dr. Perry. Uh, hey, how are you? In, in your uh, book, you give a definition of racism as a systematic devaluation of race, ethnicity, and immigration status. Uh, My question is, why did you include ethnicity and immigration status in your definition? Oh, well, because, I mean, there's clearly a connection between uh, ethnicity and race, but I, I think for me, I've also worked in... Um, with immigrant population, but my start in um, in education was actually I worked um, in the Department of Education's migrant education program in Pennsylvania, and it was my first time seeing how um, uh, essentially Mexican, Central American, um, African, uh, Caribbean. Um, labor was u- being used in the economy. And, and this was my first, it was like in 89 when I first started. It was my first job. I was a college freshman. And I didn't know what an undocumented immigrant was. Um, but I didn't know. Um, this goes back to my family, my upbringing. I was raised by an older woman who just took in kids. We weren't blood relatives. And um, so I've always had a deep appreciation for brothers and sisters who weren't necessarily my relatives, but they had similar backgrounds. And I saw so much, I learned so much about the economy by examining what was happening with the systematic abuse of migrant workers. Now, this is always a point of contention. I've always said, hey, there's, it's not slavery. No. They're not black people. No. But there's a connection there that you don't get uh, an apple for, I don't know, 50 cents, whatever, how much of it costs, if you're not abusing labor. You don't abuse labor today without having that historical 
um, um, precedent um, of flavor. And so for me, I've always included um, different forms of oppression because, you know, it's really if you're not white, you are burdened by um, white supremacy. Now, there's certainly... Um, in the American context, I will say that is, there's an anti-black um, legislative agenda that shaped um, how that manifests itself in in this country, um, and and it negatively impacts others, but they're negatively impacted, um, and so that's why I, I I bring it up in the book. But it's more it was more of a personal um, reflection of my. Um, my time in working with immigrant groups. Uh, do you think that uh, it would be accurate to say they were, the people you work with were mistreated, not so much because of their immigration status, but because they weren't white? That, yeah, I mean, that and, um, yeah, I mean, there, I don't, I don't have a problem with that because I, I think at the end of the day, um, brown people, black people, um, regardless of their immigration status, we are, I mean, get lower pay, lower benefits. Now, I, well, what there are exceptions. There are certain immigration, immigrant groups um, in terms of high-skill labor that um, we, we – we don't attack really. We don't say anything about them. We don't applaud them, but we don't hurt them either. But by and large, if you are from Mexico, Central America, um, the Caribbean, uh, you know, you are dogged in terms of policy. And um, I, 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 and so I, I, I bring that up when I can, um, because it's, it's been a sticking point for some, um, this immigration thing, because I've worked on uh, a lot of these policies. Um, it's been a wedge in the black and brown communities. And I'm like, man, this is not, this is, there should be alignment. There should be alignment. Now, there's a difference because you obviously have um, white Latinos. Um, and so... You have that issue, but but you know, for people of color who are non-white, oh, it's it's tough. It is tough for them. Uh, I had one other question. Um, since you do a lot of statistics and analysis, has anyone or have you ever considered? Uh, developing a uh, racism index or a racism well, my Well, what I do, I tend to look at assets. I look at strength. And so, you know, for me, I, I have more of a tendency, although people say, look, you created this devaluation metric. But even that is more about, it's more about saying, hey, our homes are worth more than they are priced. Um, and so I, I, I try to uplift the asset and put that in the forefront because I think a lot of 
researchers spend so much time focusing on deficit or the, the negative effect of racism, they don't put a spotlight on how racism works for white people. I'm more interested in that, that latter part. I, I don't, I try to make sure that there are metrics to, to put a spotlight on racism, um, not necessarily a, um, and so if that's what you're getting at, I'm all for it. I'm all for that. Um, but I don't, I don't do, and you'll see in the book, you know, it's not a look at how bad we're doing type of book at all. It's more of look how racism is devaluing our strengths book. And it, it's a subtle difference, but I think people who read my book will, will get that difference. Thank you, Gus. Much obliged, good sir. Nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. Uh, if you have a question for Dr. Perry, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you have a question. Uh, on page 168, bottom of 168, uh, you give a lot of detail about you and your wife. Uh, is it Joa? 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 Uh, Joya. 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 Thank you, Joya. I'm yeah, like Joy. Yeah. Thank you. I'm no a little worries. slow. I'm a little slow. All right. So 168, Joya. Joya, you and your wife, Joya. Uh, as I said, the challenge you all had with white supremacy racism uh, and being an attempted cup. Man, for anyone, if you've read Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, uh, she talks about attempted families, attempted parents. That's Mr. Fuller, all of that. Wow. The system of white supremacy does so much damage to keep us from having healthy uh, families, just health, period. Yeah. Even if you're not trying to, to have a family, just trying to be healthy. The system is dedicated to seeing that black people, non-white people are not healthy. This is the bottom of 168 from Know Your Price. Dr. Andre M. Perry writes, one day in 2008, while Joya and I were walking in Lakeside Mall after attending the birth of a child, Thomas Ryan the original chair of the ad hoc committee saw Joya wearing scrubs and he looked visibly angry. Ryan communicated with the state medical board to ask if Joya or the hospital had reported the results of his ad hoc committee's review. When he was told no, the state engaged in a full blown investigation into whether or not the hospital had sanctioned her and if her efforts to work were in violation of those restrictions. Although Baptists realized no consequences for their failure to disclose, it led to years of hearings and legal fees for Joya to prove she was indeed able to practice under the stipulations provided. Joya had to make a decision that black folks have to make regularly. Do we accept an overreaching punishment in this case, one that restricted her license beyond Baptists in recognition to power, or do we resist? We resisted fighting every step of the way, but Joya and I lost opportunities to build wealth because of the financial costs of battling a systemic effort to punish her. We knew our price, but nevertheless, the board stained her professional reputation and sapped our energy. 
we do workplace racism every Friday uh, talking about how black people are terrorized on the job. But I mean, in this specific situation, you give additional detail talking about how your wife, she was kind of warned initially like, hey, don't be working with these, you know, low caste black people that are on Medicaid and everything like we don't want to work with a whole lot of them. Get some high class, well-paying patients. That's the type of clientele that you want to work with. And you write in the book like, hey, we're in New Orleans, it's a black city. Like, you want to be serving black people. And they might be on Medicaid. That's racism, too. But they still need quality health care. we got to take care of everybody. It's, uh, mm, you want to be taking care of these low-caste black moms. We'll keep an eye on you. Matter of fact, let's audit and make sure you're following all the rules. Just can you talk about what your wife experienced and how that might? Pro- I won't even say might. That probably did contribute to some of the difficulties of you all having a biological child. Oh, man. It was one of it was a, one of the most difficult periods of our lives, and um, I'm, this is one area I'm going to let people read because it's even hard for me to talk about. But um, like I mentioned before, the attacks are real. I mean, I, it, it, if you're not on team on the team to to hurt black people, then you are an enemy in some in some circles. And and when you're an enemy, they are wielding um, money, um, power, and and weapons uh, against you. That um, we 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 felt it. We got it. There's no question about it. And um, but we you know we're better now. But I would never say. Um, some type of sort of romanticized look. We've overcome. We we overcame that. And I don't. I'm I'm no longer bitter. And all. No, no. The, the, it was a travesty that hurt us, and um, and that's why we're we continue to to fight for black folk in in whatever position they're in. Now you know we are what a lot of people will consider privilege. I'm, you know, PhD, she's an MD. Um, I work at, I work at Brookings and, and, and she runs a nonprofit for uh, looking at infant and maternal mortality. Um, we, we are in a privileged space, but I'm never, I'm, 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 I'm never um, too comfortable that, oh, they, they will come for you <laughs> eventually, and um, and so I'm learning how to pr- protect ourselves by surrounding our, our, ourselves with allies, um, and by um, making sure that we have a strategy in place um, when the attacks do come. So. Because I know even from releasing this book, there's going to be, you know, spears thrown at us. So, you know, it's, I can't, you know, I can't say any more that, and because we have number a number of heroes that paid with their life. Um, and so we're not nowhere near, we're not that in that situation, but we, we have felt real pain. Um, because of the decision to stand up for black people. 
Am I to understand it correctly after your wife and she goes through years to clear her reputation? I didn't do anything incorrect. I've just been here trying to help black moms have healthy uh, black children. That's all I've been trying to do. Help folks in New Orleans, help the yep. greater New Orleans area uh, that Mitch Landrew brings her on, sees all this quality work that she's doing. Mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrew, sees all this quality work. Uh, that she first white mayor in New Orleans in like decades. That's directly a result of Hurricane Katrina and disruption of population. Anyway, uh, so he sees all this great work that she's doing. He brings your wife in to work and continue the great work. And people are like, wait a minute. Are you aware of all of the problems that she's had and bring this to attention? And that causes her to lose this position in Mitch Landry's administration. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Wow. You know, we And I did tell that. In the book, they, you know, they went after her, no question about it. And, um, you know, and, 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 but again, we, we are on the other side of it. There's a lot of people who did not make it on the other side of it. Um, but we, we, that's, but that's why it's in the book, you know, to let people know, oh, you know, we, we felt the pain. Um, and we're going to let people know that we know, <laughs> we know what you did. So, um, yeah, so it's all in there. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping readers will, um, absorb it, not, not in the way we did, but absorb it in a way that, uh, that people can be fueled by the fight and so that people know that when you are fighting for black people, there are consequences. There are real consequences. Mm. Context of white supremacy. I want to get in one more passage really quick and get a question from our listener. Uh, this is on 171. Uh, you write after all the struggles you all, you and your wife, Joya have a healthy child, nine year old, at the time of uh, writing of this book, publication of this book, uh, you continue. Uh, Joya's license is unrestricted. Thank goodness. Now I have an opportunity to atone and a platform to do so publicly. I apologize to Joya for the stress I caused through her work on maternal mortality. I've learned not to doubt black women's accounts of racism, but rather to trust them. Joya's story is indicative of what black women go through. Her ordeal is what systemic racism and sexism looks and feels like. And although New Orleans posts some of the lowest infant mortality rates among black majority cities, black babies still die at more than twice the rate of whites, 6.82 to 9 to 2.94. And black women die at three to four times the rate of white women. This is not a coincidence. We have had some listeners, some of them black females, uh, listeners to this program who have said that these uh, statistics are misleading, uh, that this is a part of uh, the deception of racism to suggest uh, that black moms are more vulnerable uh, during pregnancy, that black babies have this higher infant mortality rate when, in fact, more white women die in childbirth and more white infants uh, end up dying before their, the end of their first year uh, of birth. Do you see anything deceptive or inaccurate about these statistics? Well, I think we're, it's really a matter of phrasing. I think when we say that black women 
are more vulnerable, we should be saying that black women get more, get attacked more. And when you put it in that regard, you, you will start to believe those statistics. The, the data on maternal um, mortality, that is real. That, that is real. And we, we cannot dismiss the, those numbers. You know, a lot of folks want to say, um, you know, that these are numbers that are baked to make us look bad or cooked up to make us look bad. No. Um, there are lots of good researchers, and my, my wife included, who are literally counting every single person who dies between um, within a year of giving birth. And the, the rates are um, a higher for black folk. But um, it's not, we should not be surprised because we do know that stress reduces life expectancy significantly. And when you, when you put it in it, going back to the context of white supremacy, when you look at the incarceration rate, the educational system, the healthcare system, housing, all those different things, yeah, we, we're going to die more that's that's real that is real and so um but again we're not necessarily more vulnerable we're more attacked and um and it results in a lower life expectancy and it in in different gender in both genders um folks at different ages um it, it's real Israel. Context of white supremacy. I said we did read medical apartheid and all of those statistics uh, that you cited in your book for infant mortality, maternal mortality, even the COVID-19 statistics. All of that matches up pretty closely with what we read in medical apartheid and what I see on a pretty regular basis in terms of how black people are terrorized and attacked in the system of racism. I don't think you... I don't think you go through a hurricane, Katrina, the levee failure, white vigilante terrorism, and come out being healthy. I just don't think that happens. But right. I could be in error. It doesn't. <laughs> uh, let's see. Did non-Clemson grad, Missy, did you all have a question? Just making sure we didn't miss any folks. Take up all of Mr. Perry's evening. Gus, can I get a question in as well? Uh, well we got the grad for Clemson grad. Oh, okay. Missy? Did you... no, um, this, is, this is Missy again. Um, just to follow up with the conversation earlier about the fallen soldier in Afghanistan, his name was First Lieutenant Trevarius Bowman of Spartanburg, South Carolina. Trevarius Bowman. And hello to Dr. Perry. Thank you for joining us tonight. I had a couple questions um, for you, just very general. Uh, when you wrote your book, who was your primary intended audience? And then the second yeah. one was, um, Go ahead. was there any part of your book that was removed or significantly rewritten by your editor? Um, I, well, my audiences were um, people living in, in black majority cities. So, you know, and I'm pretty... And I pretty much stayed the course on that. Um, no, folks did not significantly edit my book. Um, it's pretty much all, pretty much all me. Uh, so there, you know, 
I, I had to make some determinations on length and style of writing. You'll see that it's a mixture of personal stories and research. I, you know, w- w- I really wanted this to be a book that everyone can read. So many books that are policy books, it's really the, the, that policy arena, folks in that policy arena only read it. I wanted this to be more of a book that um, is, is open to wider audiences. So you'll see it read like a story, but there's a lot of data in there, a lot of data. But as Gus was reading, you could tell it, it, there's personal stories in there. But after I go from the personal story, I, I leap into a lot of data. So, and, but if you follow my work at Brookings, you'll recognize some of the data in the reports. Uh, but in the reports, you just don't get any narrative. So um, I reduced the amount of data, added story, um, and it's my story. So, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say it's been altered much, uh, you know, um, nothing against my will. Groovy, uh, Missy, uh, Travarius Bowen. Thank you for getting uh, the name. Good memory, Travarius Bowen. We will do some investigating. Uh, let's see. Uh, caller in New Jersey. Uh, you had a question for Dr. Andre M. Perry. Um, how you doing, Doctor? Um, um, I have a question. Um, have you did any work on um, the city of Newark, New Jersey? And if so. Are you familiar with uh, 19, in 2016, Mayor Ras Baraka led a march down to Port Newark, uh, Port Newark, uh, the third largest uh, port in New Jersey, and he was protesting for uh, the citizens of Newark to have access to uh, those port jobs, and um, the union reps, uh, um, you know, even made statements like. Uh, uh, you know, stop stop looking for handouts. Um, are you familiar with Newark? Are you familiar with that march? Not, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with that march. But I follow Newark a little bit, but more in the area of education. Um, Ross Baraka is, uh, I, I would consider him a great leader. Uh, um, but I, I'm not familiar with that, that particular march, but I'm not surprised by it. Um, yeah, so, but I'm, I'm not really familiar with that march. But um, it was a great change in leadership. Um, they needed it. And, um, you know, and, 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 and there were some the good fruit that came, uh, that came out of that. So, um, yeah, so, but I'm not necessarily familiar with that march. Okay. Groovy. Much obliged. Uh, caller in New Jersey, also uh, a so-called hotspot for the virus. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think we got our listeners' questions. I think I got everything in. Uh, I mean, I don't know. We uh, take that pretty seriously. I am a certified yoga instructor in addition to 
chatting about white supremacy racism and I am prenatal oh, certified wow. as well and we talked quite a bit about uh, maternal mortality rates infant mortality like trying to encourage breastfeeding and natural childbirth when you do prenatal classes and we even talked quite a bit about racism and how black moms are impacted like I do think that's pretty uh, important like uh, I don't know might be good to chat with your wife as well about her work like I don't know does she do uh, any chats and such he does. Might I'm sure be. you'll be reaching out. Yeah. yeah. We have listeners who are, you know, suspicious about those numbers. I always think it's good to have, you know, black medical professionals to be able to talk directly like, no, take this seriously and preventive things, not just moping like there are things that we can do to try to work against this and, you know, mitigating our diet and other types that you all even had your plan about talking in bed to try to conserve energy like there are things you can do. But just being realistic about how racism impacts us in, in all areas, including childbirth and pregnancy. So, yeah, Joya, we will... I'll get the name pronunciation. I'll practice it so that I can be professional and ready to roll. But yeah, I'm so impressed from what I read in the book and and, uh, her being such a a champion fighting back. Like, yeah, it would be awesome to to chat it up with her. Well, well, I'll, I'll relay that message. I will certainly relay. Much obliged, Dr. Perry. Uh, The book that we have been discussing this here evening know your price uh, yeah. just came out <laughs> just came out in the middle, in the middle of the whole uh, pandemic and uh, it does not have the word COVID-19 anywhere in the book but wowee uh, you will see quite a few bits of data and analysis that give you I think a very logical explanation as to why New Orleans Detroit. Did you, uh, Dr. Perry, see the report in Flint where they said because of the uh, chemical and biological warfare with the poisoning of the water that the residents there, mostly black, the residents there might be more susceptible uh, to COVID-19? They might have some sort of compromise. I did not, not, but I'm not surprised by that. It's not a surprise. was just within the last... So morbid illness, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was just within the last seven days or so, and they said they were still that word like experimentation and research. Those words were being used quite a bit, but they were saying they were still investigating. But that was another one where I said when people say they have doubts, like, why would I think black people in Flint, Michigan are in superior health? Like that just doesn't add up. But the book title again is Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities uh, just came out 2020. So if you want to get brand spanking new off the press, know your price. It has been a who. Well, thing. I want to. Uh, can I just thank you for uh, the opportunity to talk to your listeners and um, and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. But um, I, I'm always just uh, enthralled by just meeting new people and reaching new audience. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to read the book and, and to really highlight significant parts of it. Uh, yeah. So thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Perry, for sharing. Thank you and your wife for being, you know, willing to be so vulnerable and to share uh, some of the intimate ways that you have been impacted by white supremacy, racism and sharing to try to correct that problem. So thank you for being flexible. Thanks for hanging out with us this evening with the insight. And absolutely, we'll beg and and do what we can see if we can get your wife on the program to uh, continue the conversation. But keep up the outstanding work and hopefully we will speak with you soon, Dr. Perry. All right. Well, take care. Have a good good, uh, rest of the evening. 
Thank you so much, sir. You too. Dr. Andre M. Perry, author, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Quote again, I can give it one more time. I feel like I've said it a lot during the whole shutdown and everything. There is nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. Second best quote of the pandemic. Andrew Young still holding strong at number one. The sickness is white supremacy. We will be here on uh, two, uh, Thursday. Today is Tuesday. Days are running together. We'll be here Thursday. Uh, Dr. Layla Africa. Uh, the what is it? Nutritional Destruction of Black People. Worst book ever. Jeez. Worst book ever. Can't believe it worst book ever I get my energy comes down every time I think like once Thursday ends I throw that book out of my room and I don't think about it anymore I don't look at it It, I try to get it out of my mind and then by the time like Tuesday starts to come around it's like oh the book club oh worst book ever we'll try to get through we are the only good thing I can say is that we're almost at the end we're almost at the end Uh, we're like past page 250 so we should not have too many more to go. We can be done and we'll pick something really good to read next time around. But wow, <sighs> nothing redeeming that I can think of at all uh, other than it. Ha- it does regularly recommend breastfeeding. That is good. And eating more fruits and vegetables, which is always good to get that reminder uh, to have less processed foods. But wow. Wow. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific this Thursday. Wow. Anywho, I hope we are able to get Dr. Perry's wife on. Not that it wasn't great having him. That was, you know, <laughs> not trying to, like, man, we wasted time with him. Not saying that at all. It was great. Get him on. Great, great, great. Wouldn't even know about his wife if we hadn't read his book and talked to him. So, great. Uh, but just saying, like, wow. Like, reading it, I don't know if you all got the full, uh, all of the detail, obviously, and impact of the story, but to have a black doctor, I'm trying to serve black patients, make sure that these black moms are healthy, having healthy black children, which benefits everybody, and to be warned, threatened, really. I don't know. I don't want you working with a whole lot of these black moms. Got these welfare crack addict, uh, crack babies running around here. I don't know. Why don't you get you some good paying white patients? They're like, huh? in the black city this is new orleans we got a lot of black people they need medical we can't send them to the coon man they need medical care oh we got a uppity doctorate nigger here huh okay not gonna take my advice you're gonna keep serving those black moms okay audit bam doing something incorrect we're gonna go through and suspend where you can't even practice and all that the anecdote that i read a white man sees you out walking at the mall it's not, oh, hey, how you doing? Oh, there's that nigger. <sighs> Glad I don't have to see her anymore. It's, what? Is that nigger in scrubs? She's been practicing. I'm calling right now. Get my cell phone. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. What? Again, I tell us all this is on the day they announced uh, Senator Leffler in Georgia, white woman, no charges. We're not even investigating anymore. Did she do anything suspicious? Fraudulent making all these trades millions of dollars telling us that COVID-19 is fine while she's selling off everything. Oh my God, make sure I don't get wiped out. They're not charging her with anything. 
system of racism, white supremacy, but we got Dr. Perry's doctor wife not giving out Oxycontin like it's chewing gum, fake prescriptions and what have. No, 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 no. I just want to help, you know, black moms make sure they deliver safely, make sure they have healthy children. We have got to stop this nigger. That is Louisiana. That is the system of white supremacy, racism. And, and for it to continue, right? It's years of this, that we got to battle and fight to cl- uh, clear her name and thousands of dollars spent and employment opportunities messed up and the time and energy and stress to deal with all of that. You deal with all of that. And then the mayor says, hey, I've been seeing you doing all this great work. We got rid of that. No good Nick Ray Nagin. Come and work. Be a part of my administration. Continue doing that great medical work. You get a new job. You're moving on. Oh, no. The race soldiers. Wait a minute. You're going to hire that coon. Don't you know she's been in trouble? Let me hear. Let me fax all of her. That's why I said the uh, retired firefighter, when he was talking about the enforcement official in Florida, where they claim they dug in the past and found something, he lied to us and didn't shit. They're not ignorant about anything. If they don't want you to have this job, you won't have it. And that'll just be that. It's not a question of they're ignorant. They didn't know this and you deceived them. If they don't want you to have the job, you just won't have the job. And that'll be that dedicated schadenfreude just take enjoyment at causing misery for black people i never even heard like did she do something wrong <laughs> like uh what exactly was the problem was she giving out medication was she was she was she selling oxycontin out of the trunk of her car down at the times picayune like what did she do to warrant all of this we just like practicing racism let me give you one more stat from the book and then we'll double check he had uh this was a great one i thought because it showed uh, just another component we talk I think a lot of people talk about white people benefiting from the practice of white supremacy racism this is a, a, a very different component of benefit let's see hopefully it won't take me too long to scroll through here pick it out I had not intended to read alright we're close to it close to it let's see Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. reading still Im- more important than watching television uh, no, it's in the chapter where he talks about the punishment that they attempted or the punishment that they. OK, OK. Uh, highlighted quite a bit in that chapter. All right, here we go. Uh, to measure structural racism, the researchers explored disparities in four areas, political participation, employment educational attainment and incarceration in the United States results indicated that blacks living in states with high levels of structural racism were generally more likely to report past year myocardial infarction than blacks living in low structural racism states. That's cardiovascular disease. Uh, But the researchers also found that whites living in states with high levels of structural racism say it again. Researchers also found that whites living in states with high levels of structural racism experienced insignificant or lower odds of myocardial infarction compared to whites living in low structural racism states. I don't know where they are. Where do you think the low structural racism states would be? I don't even have a guess. 
The researchers therefore argue that structural racism may not only harm the targets of stigma, but also benefit those who wield the power to enact stigma and discrimination. I don't use those words, stigma and discrimination, but if you got it in the areas where they had high structural racism, black people had higher levels of cardiovascular disease in the regions with high levels of structural racism. White people had either insignificant or lower levels of cardiovascular disease, meaning practicing racism. It seemed not only to harm the black people, but it seemed white people were healthier in those areas. Isn't that striking? Not surprising. Just wow. I even when I read that, I thought back when we had Professor uh, Vernelia Randall on the program a couple weeks back, about a month ago, when she said, no, I don't doubt any of the uh, statistics about COVID-19. I think it's accurate. Black people are being impacted more and all the rest of it. Uh, she said white people study racism and health. They have extensive statistics on this subject matter. They would probably know in advance that it was going to impact black people more. They study this all the time. What does Mr. Fuller say? They go to the bottom of the ocean, study a grain of sand. That's what that bit of data sounded like to me. White people with insignificant or lower levels of cardiovascular problems in the areas with high structural racism. Uh, any of the folks that are with us have uh, any comments, questions they want to make sure they share uh, Dr. Perry's visit before we wrap things up. Uh, Gus, hello? Yes, sir. I, um, I didn't understand what exchange you had with uh, Dr. Perry he, when you were talking about uh, politics and the election down in Georgia. It, Dr. Perry was it his understanding that he felt that the reason why a lot of people voted for uh, Trump was because of lack of education? Or did I misconstrue that? I thought that was what he implied uh, when he was, I think he was talking about the election in Alabama. That was when I was, I was asking him about, um, I think it was any evidence of black teachers with that whole exchange was interesting because I asked him, did he have any evidence that having black teachers would interrupt what he calls the cycle of white children becoming racist? And he pivoted to the election in Alabama with Roy Moore and Roy Moore and Doug Jones. Um, he didn't pivot to examples of black teachers where, you know, they had little Johnny or Susie and they ended up not being a racist and, I don't know, maybe they ran the campaign for Senator Jones and all the rest of it. But anyway, um, yeah, it was in that exchange where he was saying that uh, you can't vote for Trump unless you are ignorant or have some sort of lack of understanding and all the rest of that. And I just that, you know, the statistics I saw white women across all economic and educational levels voted for Donald Trump. Fifty two percent of white women voters supported Trump in 2016 I suspect a repeat in 2020 um, that's not what the data said that it was just you know dumb ignorant white women who were responsible for him being elected that's not what the data said last time around so yeah that's not that is not my understanding of white people that is not my understanding of racism white supremacy that any of their conduct 
that ends up being white supremacist racist. None of that is the result of or motivated by ignorance or lack of understanding or lack of awareness. None of that. And I, I endorse that completely. I mean, that's certainly, you know, I'm not as familiar with those statistics, but my personal experience, it has nothing to do with education. I've seen plenty of what would be considered the most highly educated people who are classified as white who support Trump. And, you know, vehemently. So I... That that certainly hasn't been my experience. I just wasn't sure what what the doctor's uh, feeling was about that. Uh, that's all. Thanks. Much obliged. Yep, that is very common. Uh, white people's racist conduct being attributed to ignorance, ignorance or lack of understanding. Uh, that's very common. Uh, I think that is also one of the greatest lies. Put that you can put that right side by side. White people are ignorant or unaware, and then black people are the experts on racism, white supremacy. Although we're not able to solve this problem, totally backwards, totally other way around, uh, reverse things in terms of what is actually happening. Again, white people cannot be ignorant about white supremacy, racism. They will get in trouble with other black people. Uh, incidentally, I remember an anecdote, uh, Jim Grimsley, he was a guest on the program back in 2016. He wrote about having a black teacher. This is a white man. He wrote about having a black teacher when he was going to school. He was, uh, amongst the first kind of wave of white students to be going to school when they so-called integrated. And so he was kind of one of the first groups to have a black teacher, white students to have a black teacher. Uh, And he just he gave an anecdote about practicing racism against her like he didn't say, you know, she stopped me from practicing racism. And I realized, you know, I've got to be nice to black people and, you know, do right by them. He already understood this is a nigra. In fact, I think he gave an anecdote about not calling her by her last name that I made a decision to call her by her first name. I knew she was a nigra. Even at that age as a child. So, yeah. Not really seen any evidence in the voting thing. Like I said, we sat through eight years of President Obama. And, you know, at this point, like I have seen white people cast a ballot for a nigra and then come right back out and practice white supremacy racism. So, in fact, we can stop all that with the voting. Joe Biden ran on the ticket with President Obama and then came out and told us if we don't want to vote for him, we aren't even black. So. Anyway, uh, any other folks comments they need to get in? Lost our nigger card because we want to support the current president. Come on. Folks satisfied? Be good for a Tuesday evening. Grant, uh, we will be here for Thursday. Maybe tomorrow. Like I said I might be a guest on a broadcast tomorrow. Uh, we'll have to see. Uh, it should be, I reckon, in the uh, archives, unless it's a lot of name calling and non constructive uh, behavior. But it should just be talking about the same thing we always talk about white supremacy uh, and some of the more current incidents uh, the male incident with the 11 year old uh, black girl and male incident with myself, unfortunately, and some of the more current topics. I think that's what we're discussing. But uh, I'll share that. That's for tomorrow. We should be here on Thursday for the book club. 
Neutralizing Workplace Racism for Friday. Uh, if you have questions, comments, uh, difficulties, need info, drop an email until justice at gmail.com. We should be doing the retreat for August 5th through the 9th. Washington, D.C., aforementioned Latte City, Washington, D.C. We can give away to Dr. Perry and his wife, Joya. Uh, drop an email if you would like to come and hang out D.C. area uh, for August 5th through the 9th. Hopefully everything will be calm by then, uh, at least functional, where we can you know, hang out, do a little yoga, like Miss C, do a little yoga, eat some vegan vittles, have some relaxation, meditation, some deep breathing, uh, and maintain a little social distancing all the while hopefully uh, but we'll be trying to do it August 5th through the 9th drop an email if you need more details uh, other than that much obliged for everyone's participation this year Tuesday evening hope it was worthy of your time and energy reading writing more important than watching television absolutely give Netflix a break Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Preserve our brain computers, that cigarette smoking, the alcohol consumption. None of that is going to help us uh, replace this system. Uh, Let's try to preserve our health. Uh, Hopefully, if anything, uh, that has been reinforced over the past couple of months. Really make sure that preserving, maintaining really high quality health and vitality uh, is a central component uh, of your counter-racism code. Uh, The system of white supremacy intends for us to not be healthy. They already got that in their plan. They work on perfecting it. They intend on us passing away at 59, 55, 50, all that madness. That's what they intend for. We got to have a counter plan to try to work against that as best we can. No alcohol, narcotics, that can be a big component. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled. Every time we are in a vehicle, I guess there's a little bit more getting out and about because things are opening up. Uh, I would still be really cautious. You got a lot of armed, dangerous race soldiers, sometimes with a badge. Sometimes they don't have a badge. We, I mean, it's too many cases to mention. George Floyd, too many cases to mention. Lots of reasons other than the virus to be cautious about being outside uh, right now. If you are going to go out, I'd be really strategic, really alert. If it looks like anything is awry, looks like something could be heading towards a confrontation, out of there. Time to go. I'm not looking to save face or prove anything to anybody. Out of there. Get myself back home. We'll quarantine. Try to get another day. We're sober. If you're going out, you are buckled. If you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. Again, just trying to do little things that we can from a weak position to try to keep ourselves as safe as we can under very dangerous conditions. You see that every day. System of white supremacy is dangerous worldwide for individuals classified as black. That's it, creator. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person 
It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Yeah, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.